Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Former Mariners farmhand. Swing and a foul straight back to Cal Raleigh. Castillo strikes out O'Neill with the bases loaded to limit the damage. A swing and a miss. It gets away. Julio thinking about it, but he stays put. Verhagen covers the plate, and Hernandez is into first. A heck of a break for the Mariners. My goodness. Bases are loaded with one out for A.J. Pollock. Infield backs up now. Line drive over Donovan's head. Base hit. Julio's waving them all home. Standing first pitch swing and AJ Pollock wasted no time. He has given the Mariners a four to two lead. Watt to center. Julio to the track, slowing down. Ball game over. The Mariners win. And they've taken the series now in line for the sweep of the Cardinals. They did not get the sweep in that series. And alongside Alex Ferrario and Taylor Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, that audio is courtesy of the Mariners TV network. Why don't you get the broadcast for the Cardinals every once in a I while, would man? I really <laughs> like to do Jeez. that. When the Cardinals have a bunch of highlights, it is much easier Sick of this. to grab the Cardinals highlights from the weekend. Unfortunately, once again, we come into a Monday morning with the same stories as we've had all year. Missed opportunities, man. And I feel like the moment that you heard there at the beginning of that open that T-Bone put together is the moment from the weekend that really, to me, symbolized what this team has been so far this season. On Saturday, in the first inning, Cardinals are up two to nothing. They've got the bases loaded. Tyler O'Neill is up to the plate. You got two outs, bases loaded. Cardinals have an opportunity to get to one of the best starters in Major League Baseball so far this year and Luis Castillo. You know, when you're going up against an ace, you got to get him early. This is always the storyline. Get him early or you're not going to be able to get to him. Cardinals had that opportunity to really put up a crooked number against Castillo. Instead, Tyler O'Neill strikes out. He's now two for 16 with five strikeouts with runners in scoring position so far this season. The Cardinals as a team are struggling mightily so far this season with runners in scoring position. It's been a theme. I can't explain it. Just like I can't explain their struggles on the year. You're now nine and 13, nine and 13. Now you're not buried. This is not a season that is completely at a loss. You have not done this season. What the blues did to theirs where you lose seven games in a row. And it's just very clear by the end of the first month. Oh, this just ain't going to work. Boy, but you are trending that way quickly. But Alex, I can't explain why it's always something. There have been games this year where the offense hasn't been able to get it going. There have been games this year, many a time where the starting pitching let them down. There have been games this year where the bullpen was the reason why they weren't able to get anything going. Sometimes it's situational hitting. Other times it's them striking out too often. That hasn't happened a ton this year, but it's happened occasionally. And then sometimes it's just defense. 
a wild pitch that randomly goes beyond the catcher or a play at the plate where the pitcher doesn't seem to recognize that he needs to be there and the catcher doesn't identify that he needs to get the play to home or it's a base running mistake or it's them not getting a guy that's caught in the rundown. It's these little things that amount to really big things. And that's why you're nine and 13 to start out the season. It's been unbelievably frustrating to watch. I feel like it's the same narrative with this Cardinals team. Every time they enter a series, you open up the first game of that series underwhelmingly to where you just got no offense and you're looking at it's like, what the hell? That's what this one was. Jordan Walker gets the started or gets the game started for you with that big double to score the two runs. But then after that, nothing. And that's the first game of the series where you're like, oh, here we go again. The second game in the series, you're like, oh, here they go. A little bit of inspiration where you're thinking that you get it. But then you get that letdown moment, the Tyler O'Neill one, because that was my exact same moment as yours when Tyler O'Neill struck out in that big, impactful moment. And then you're like, yep, that's that's what does it for him. And then the third game of the series, just when you think they're going to get swept, they unload to give you hope. It's the same narrative every single series for this Cardinals team. And you're just doing this vicious cycle of it, which is so infuriating because you know that they've got the offense to be consistent. You see the opportunities in front of them to unload on the opposition and say, blank, you guys, we are going to run away with this series, but they never capture it. And if it's one thing after the other, it's the runners in scoring positions, striking out with two guys or with uh, with two strikes. It's the pitchers having one bad blow up inning and you can't regain form from that. Or it's late in games where you feel like you can make a push and then you just fall flat. It really is starting to feel more and more like this blue season where every single game, maybe it's not a seven game losing streak or an eight game losing streak where you're like, oh, yeah, this is it. This team's not going to be good because obviously this team's not in that bad of a spot. But you're fourth in the NL Central. You started off a 10 game road trip where we said it's going to be impactful for at least the first half of the season. And you've got one win in three outings to avoid going 500. I mean, you're talking about six and Six and three, six and two the rest of the way. That's not correct. Five and two the rest of the way. And that's San Francisco seems like an easy opponent. But once again, the narrative is the exact same with this Cardinals team. Yeah, well, they don't have the killer instinct to finish somebody off, as we've talked about. I, I mean, they when you have Tyler O'Neill come up in the bases loaded spot, you can put away the Seattle Mariners in that game, essentially. And you don't come through. You give them life, they end up tying it, they end up winning the ball game. And you can't have these little things popping up as a baseball team, whether it be fielding mistakes where you don't get a guy out in a rundown, which we've seen multiple times this year. Uh, You can't have one little blow-up inning that comes back to bite you. You can't be making base-running mistakes. When you're a team that, let's just be honest, isn't good at anything yet so far this year. I mean, you can make the argument they're good at getting on base, but are we going to give you credit when you're not bringing home those runs? They're not good with runners in scoring position. Defensively, there have been lapses. Honestly, I don't even think they're that good defensively so far this year. You look at their pitching staff. The starting pitching has been terrible. It's been awful. You look at the bullpen. There's been too many outings where things go wrong. There are too many things that you are bad at, and I don't even think I can point to something that you're good at. Mine is getting on base. But again, you don't bring those runs home. So they, they've got to get something going here. They have to figure something out by the time this road trip comes on. They have to have something by the time they come home to take on the Angels. They can say, this is what we're good at. And they just do not have that right now. And that is the reason why they are struggling to win baseball games. Because you can put like Pittsburgh Pirates, for example. They're not a great offensive team, but what can they put their hat on? Their starting pitching has been awesome. You look at the Milwaukee Brewers. Their starting pitching has been okay. What can they put their hat on? Their young guys were coming through when they were healthy, and that was what was helping also, win the ball Also, best games. defense in baseball so far this year Yeah, for the for the Milwaukee Brewers. And the Cardinals can't say that about anything right now. I, I do think the offense, 
will end up being that what they put their hat on because we've talked about it most talked about it that's going to be the identity of this team but when they are not playing well and they're playing too inconsistent of baseball you're not going to be winning baseball games because you don't have the pitching to do so 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show i've seen a lot of this on social media we're seeing it on the text line as well i am curious to see where most people fall on this Somebody from the 636 says, the reason why you can't figure it out is because you're looking at the numbers. In my opinion, the problem with this Cardinals team is that they aren't having fun. The clubhouse isn't gelling. They're too tight. And that falls back on the manager. I don't think this is a poorly coached or poorly managed team. And I don't think this is about fun or a lack of excitement. Well, I'm not having fun. I'm not having fun Me either. Neither. I think that is a virtue of them losing. When you play winning baseball, it's fun. Who was it that said the fun is in the winning? Like that, that's where it is. If you win, you have fun. And this becomes something that we talked about a lot with the Blues as well, where it's the leadership isn't where it needs to be. I just, I'm not willing to attribute a lack of winning to a lack of leadership or a lack of fun or a lack of excitement. I think they're losing, which leads to them looking flat. When you are winning, when you are scoring a lot of runs, when you're coming through with runners in scoring position, that's when you get the trident out if you're the uh, Seattle Mariners, which I like. By I was going to say, can I can I like be a total non-Cardinal fan right now? I love the trident. It was cool. The trident and then the Angels Ninja hat, I think, are the two of the cool or the samurai hat that they have. That's where you get the pepper grinder going. Like, yeah, that's not working. Stuff gets yeah. exciting when you're scoring a bunch of runs or when your pitchers are dominating on the mound. You have big moments defensively. And this team isn't coming through with enough of those right now. Like, it's about to play. They're not playing well, guys. And if you want me to explain that away or excuse it away, I ain't going to do it. But I don't think it's because they're a poorly coached or a poorly managed team. I think they're just not coming through. How do I explain that Nolan Arenado right now, if you're looking at slugging percentage on the team in terms of their qualified hitters, he has the lowest slugging percentage on the team. Do I think that's because Turner Ward now is giving him too many analytics? No, no I don't think it's enough analytics. Turner yeah. Ward is the guy that says we need to get a little gooder today. He's not out there giving him a packet of or a binder of numbers to look at. Nolan Arnado just isn't hitting right now. I don't know why. I can't explain it. I don't think that's going to sustain. Paul Goldschmidt has not hit for power basically since last September. Why is that? I don't know. Do I think it's going to sustain? Hell no. I think you have a team right now that is not performing the way that it expected to. And I think that's leading to it looking like they're not having a whole lot of fun. And it's leading to us not having fun on Monday mornings. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, well, even, even it. when they win a game, it's like, yeah, that wasn't very fun. That seems to be the start of the season. But I, I say this all the time with Craig Berube when people complain about him being a head coach and needing to be fired. And I always say it has nothing to do with the coach and everything to do with the players. And baseball is different than hockey because that's more of a buy-in. Whereas in baseball, you know, it is a little individualistic. But again, these guys, I believe what this is, is you've got guys who are trying to do too much. Once again, you've got guys who are choking up on the bat a little too much because they know there's runners on and they know the narrative about this team that when they get guys on base in scoring position, they typically strike out or ground into a double play they still haven't had that breakthrough moment where it's like, all right, let's, let's pump the brakes here, boys. We're fine. They've had spurts of it. Like the Colorado Rocky series, yep. Wilson Contreras for them in that previous homestand. But the problem is you're not building off of it. And I do think that's more so them putting pressure on themselves, but 
to sit there and blame Ali Marmalt when you're blaming the manager, it's because he's making managerial decisions that are costing them games. And yeah, there have been a couple of games this season so far that we've questioned the decisions that he's had. But by no means do Welcome I think to being a manager in Major League Baseball. Right. But by no means do I look at this and say, well, Ali split up Goldie and Arenado yesterday. <laughs> so obviously the manager's to blame for their offense. Do I think that he shouldn't have said on Saturday, or I guess it would have been Friday night, that it doesn't matter that they're not winning game ones of the series? Yeah, I think that was probably something that if he could go back, he wouldn't say it. Do I think it was a silly comment? I do. I I think he does care, by the way, that they're not winning the first games of the series. I think he's frustrated. I think everybody in that clubhouse is frustrated. There was quotes that came out on Saturday about Nolan Arenado leading a fiery hitters meeting that led to them having a pretty good day overall against Luis Castillo. They didn't scratch across the runs that they needed. I think that leads to you not looking like you're gelling as a team because you're not winning. I think this team will come together. I continue to believe that this is going to result this, this season will, and then winning the NL Central. I do. I genuinely believe they're going to come out as the best team in this division. It hasn't looked that way so far, and it needs to start getting better. And the first place that they need to start is by winning game ones of these series. Like getting off to a better start would be a huge help to them because so far this year, they haven't done it. They've got an opportunity to do that later on tonight. We'll talk about that. Plus, Are you ready to buy into Jack Flaherty's recent performances? I know T-Bone certainly is. Alex, are you? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Flaherty making his fifth start of the season. We know what he's got. The question is going to be in this one, just does he command the fastball early? Has not thrown as many strikes with that pitch as he would like to at this point. And he heats him up. All fastballs from Flaherty. Nice pitch. 97 from Jack Flaherty. Best fastball of the day. Flaherty one strike away from getting through six and giving the Cardinals their third quality start of the year. Amazing when it's gotten to this point. What a pitch. Throws him. What a way to end your performance. Nine strikeouts for Flaherty. He competed extremely well before the game. We, we talked about this as a guy that understands what's at stake, like putting an end to it, getting to go in a little deeper and uh, getting us going. And he embraced that and did exactly that. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. A really nice day yesterday for Jack Flaherty. He gives the Cardinals just their third quality start of the season. Alex, he goes six innings, gave up three earned runs. Most of those coming up, or that that big inning against him in the second inning is is really the only damage that was done against him over the course of the day. But maybe most importantly. He looked like he had the swing and miss stuff that he's been missing at times this year. Nine strikeouts finished the day with 23 swings and misses. The most that he's had in any individual game since August of 2018. Talking about a big time game when it came to the swing and miss stuff for Jack Flaherty. Alex, we've asked this question in some various different form over each of his last three starts where he's gone five and a third innings, gave up one earned run against Colorado, and then went into it went up against Arizona, six innings, four earned runs. And then yesterday, six innings, three earned runs. Are we starting to see signs that Jack Flaherty is getting to that form that we were looking for from him in 2023? T-Bone said it last week, and T-Bone, I apologize because I made fun of you. Yeah, you did. But guess what, boys? 
I'm all aboard the Jack is back train. Really? I'm all aboard the Jack is back train. The second inning to me yesterday was a Jack Flaherty moment that proved, I don't want to say the ace form, but proved to be the guy that you rely on in big situations. He gives up the home run to leave it off. He gives up the single. He gives up, what was it? It was a double, and he got out of that inning cleanly. And to me, that was a Jack Flaherty moment that, it resolved my concerns of him in terms of when a bad blow up inning happens, Jack can't get it back on track. He got that back on track. And then the rest of the way, Jack Flaherty was clean for you. Now you gave up three runs in that second inning, which was a little threatening, but the rest of the way you saw more of the swing and miss stuff. You saw a more calm Jack Flaherty there. So for me, I'm ready to approach the Jack Flaherty is back to this form platform after that performance against Seattle. And I understand it was Seattle, so you can't get too excited about it. But to be able no, you to, can. to be able to Seattle's get out, got a good offense. And to get out of that inning after it looked like it was about to be a blow up where you took the two run lead, that was impressive to me. I mean Jared Kellenick is crushing the baseball as we saw this weekend. He's batting six for them. You can get excited about that performance against that specific team. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with his stuff and I, I thought he was back after the Arizona outing, but I, I said that, you know, you have to also look at it and say, can he do it again? Can he repeat that performance? And I thought the most impressive part about the outing was just the way he was able to manipulate the hitters at the plate with his breaking stuff. Because he, I didn't think his fastball was all that great yesterday, but he was able to command that slider curveball, mix up the speeds with it, get the swing and miss on those pitches. I mean, you look at his slider, for example, this year, opponents are hitting 163 against it and have a slugging percentage of 326. So he's doing a really good job with his breaking ball. And now that he's also added that command with the fastball. He was kind of lulling batters to sleep. You saw it where he'd go slider, slider, then boom, fastball and catch guys off guard. It looked like Jack Flaherty of old with the strikeout stuff that you saw. So I, I was bought in last week. It was good to see it kind of reaffirm for me that he looks like the guy that we've been expecting. And if you look at like his baseball savant page, because I was curious to know what it looks like, there's, I, I wouldn't read too much into it. This is one of those where my eye feels like it reads better than what the numbers say because he's not he's in blue in a lot of categories. But a I, lot of that comes from the first couple of starts too, where he was just walking the world. That, that's fair, but it's good to see the one that's most important to me that I'm looking at when I'm looking into Jack Flaherty is his whiff percentage, and he's starting to creep up into that 68th percentile, and I think that's just going to go up higher and higher. I'm really excited about what we're seeing from Jack Flaherty. I think the big question for me is how does he prevent those blow-up innings? Because we've seen that in most of his starts so far this year, where for one inning, and it it's happened at the beginning, it's happened at the end of his starts, we've, we've, had, we've seen this happen to him regularly so far this year, he just gives up a lot of contact, and it's a lot of hard contact. We saw that in the last game, was it the sixth inning, where he gave up the... The double or the home run, the double, and then the walk. And then they had to bring in somebody in relief, and it got away from him. I think it was Zach Thompson, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then this one, it was in the second inning where he gives up a homer, and then a flyout, single, double, walk, single, walk. It, it just, he, he loses everything when things go south for him. He was then able to get a swinging strikeout, and you like to see him get back on track, but you would have liked to have seen it a little bit earlier. Right. And that's where number ones are able to bear down. You saw this with Luis Castillo on Saturday. He had that tough first inning, but he limited the damage when he got up against Tyler O'Neill. And that's something that I would like to see more of from Jack Flaherty. Before I can say he is back, I need to see what we saw from on Saturday from Luis Castillo from him, where he just shuts down that inning and then dominates basically the rest of the game. Now, Luis Castillo did not get deep into that game, and that's going to happen, man. That happens to a lot of number one starters around Major League Baseball. Look at Jacob deGrom. The guy is a legit front end, whether you want to call it ace or number one, whatever you want to call it. 
but he doesn't get deep into baseball games. If that's the version of Jack Flaherty that we need to sign up for this year, I'm willing to do so. But to me, what we've seen so far from Jack is more of a 2-3. And that's fine. Man, if that's what you're going to get out of him, at least you have a defined idea, a defined role of what he's going to be. But so far this year, is Jack quote-unquote back? I'm still on no, because when I think of is Jack back, I'm thinking ace, number one starter that can start game one of a playoff series, and you feel really good about him going up against any starter that he's going up against. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting closer, and I'm seeing signs that what we're watching right now is a guy that could start a game two for you in a series, and then Montgomery starts a game three for you in a series, and now things start to fall into place behind them, but I still don't know that the staff has a legit number one on it. I'm with you there, and Jack, though, took a step closer to that for me, and the the reason that I would jump on the Jack is back train with Tanner is mostly because of the last couple of seasons for him to where you haven't seen, you know, a full season or he's gotten all that work. Like I, I do believe there's still some building up for Jack Flaherty to get back into this routine. And the fact that he limited that to three runs where that could have been four five, six runs, because we've also seen that with Jack Flaherty, yeah. not just the season, but in the past where that inning turns into five runs and you're talking about being down that felt like the proper step in the right direction. And again, you just find ways to build off of, if I'm not mistaken, his next start's going to be against the Dodgers. That's going to be another really good test for him because this lineup is probably better than what the Dodgers are going to go throw out there. But you do still have to go up against Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts. And that's going to be a task for Jack Flaherty. The Dodgers. And then you'll see him against the angels who they don't have the depth that the Mariners do, but the top end of that lineup, you got Shohei and Trout. So, but I guess when I look at Jack, I guess I'm partially projecting forward when I'm I'm talking about him because, yes, he did have kind of that quote-unquote blow-up ending, but it wasn't like a, and I hate to say this, but it, it wasn't a Michaelis blow-up ending where there were five, six runs that came across. He was able to limit the damage to three, and based on everything we've seen this year where the slider's playing, the fastball's playing, and I, I think part of what, and I didn't know what this was at the time, but when he was yelling at somebody when he came off the mound, apparently he thought they were reading some of his uh, pitches and some of his sequencing, which kind of makes sense because it was the, there was the one inning where he just started getting hit hard just randomly. I I, I don't think that was a coincidence. Um, but I, I, I just look at him and I say the way his slider is playing, the way I've seen that pitch and how he's been using it, and now he's getting command of the fastball back, and he can rev it up to, I think he got up to 97 yesterday. Yeah, at the very end. Which tells me that he is building towards becoming that number one guy. I I think by the time we get done with his next two starts against both L.A. teams, I think you'll be completely bought in like me to where he's not going to have that big inning. At least that's my hope because I – I still think he's the number. I still think he's a number one, but I understand where you're coming from. For hey, a number one doesn't have that inning. He can kind of wiggle his way out of that and still go deep into games. Final thing that I wanted to bring up here is what the Cardinals have done so far this season in the first games of the series. They have not won one yet. They're zero and seven in those opportunities. Here's what Ollie Marmel had to say on Friday after the game when he was asked about the Cardinals not being able to get off on the right foot in individual series. We did that on the road quite a bit last year. Still won the division by quite a bit, so it doesn't matter to me. I want to win them all, but as far as it being a trend or something that I'm monitoring now. Now, him saying doesn't matter to me, that's gonna, that's not going to play well. That's like, going to piss people it's off. It's just not going to play well with Cardinals fans, and I think if he could do it over again, he would he would reshape that. He said it afterwards, but it's not a quote that's going to get picked up. I want to win them all. That's, that's his honest-to-God opinion. 
He doesn't want to go into a series and lose game one. He does care about this. Of course he does. That's not what I heard, BK. Of, I know. Everybody inside of that clubhouse cares that they're not winning. What he's trying to get across there, and I think he probably could have and should have done it a little bit more effectively, is saying, listen, it's not about losing game one. It's about losing in general. We're not playing our best baseball right now. And until we do so, it doesn't matter if it's game one, game two, game three. It's not getting put together. And so we need to start doing that. That being said, I do think winning game one of this series against the Giants would certainly go a long way. You're set up well to do so. Jordan Montgomery is on the mound for you. He's a left-handed pitcher. And the Giants are one of the three worst teams in Major League Baseball at hitting against left-handed pitchers so far this season. Alex, do you know what I would give to just see a clean baseball game from the Cardinals? where Jordan Montgomery gives them his third quality start on the season. The defense is crisp behind him. They get a couple of big knocks with runners in scoring position. Like that is something that we just, maybe they get a steal or two. They run the base as well. The last time that we saw this team just from start to finish play a completely crisp baseball game was what the three Oh win against Pittsburgh. It's probably it. And it feels like I'm pointing to that the way that we pointed to that 3-0 win against the Edmonton Oilers because it is the oasis in the middle of the desert that has not happened a whole lot so far this season. Yeah, I mean, the comment from Ollie shouldn't have been, I'm not worried about winning the first game. The comment should have been, I'm worried about winning the series because that's what you have not been doing this season is picking up series wins. And you saw it once again against Seattle. But yeah, I mean, this is an opportunity against an underperforming San Francisco Giants team where, yeah, the ideal start would be in certain situations like this. I just... Tanner mentioned it in the open. It it does really feel like this team is lacking that killer mentality. And they've got Great. individuals who have it, like Wilson Contreras has been showcasing it. Nolan Arenado, we've seen it in the past. But, man, I, it's I just hate, not manifesting itself on the field. I think they've got a lot of I, guys that have the mentality. I, I think Ollie Marmol has that mentality. You remember last year against yeah. Milwaukee where he, or Colorado yeah, when Paul, he pinch hit Paul Albert Pujols? Like oh, that was fantastic. <laughs> to, he wanted to death. get that um, yeah. grand slam. Like He has that mentality. Yesterday, bringing in Helsley into a big spot. Wasn't that the seventh inning, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, because he like, finished the seventh and then pitched the eighth. I remember that, that is the killer mentality that we're talking about. They have it. Man, it's just not showing itself on the field. I mean, I know it's April, and I know there's a lot of baseball still to be played, but part of me feels like I'd like to see a little bit more of playoff mentality from this team right now just because of how deep you're falling in the NL Central. And I know his talk of last year, how they won the uh, sent the uh, division handsomely. Well, guess what? This division's a lot more difficult than what it's been in years past, and the schedule's not as favorable as it was in the past for you. Yeah, the, the division is tougher this year. There are, There's only one cupcake in the division, unlike in years past where there have been three, and that cupcake is still the Cincinnati Reds, oh, but so I, yeah, they're awful. Uh, but I, I think tonight's an important game because it just sets the tone for a series. You know, when you're playing good baseball, you don't really look at it. Oh, you know, we dropped game one of a th- four game set of the Giants. You know why? Because you're thinking we're going to win the next three. When you're playing bad baseball and you haven't won a ton of series early on in the year, and to Alex's point, you're starting to slowly tumble down in terms of games back from the Brewers and the Pirates, who have the top two records in the National League. 
then losing game one goes, oh, bleep, here we go again. So tonight needs to be one of those where let's set the tone for the series if you're the Cardinals. Honestly, I'd love to see him get more aggressive on the base paths, too. Agreed. And, not, and I don't mean not just Arnado, going. Not though. <laughs> yeah, no, Arnado, you can just stay put Chill, at first. Man. I tell you, he's dogging it. Relax. But uh, I, I don't mean going, like, first to third. I mean, get on base and be aggressive. I mean, the reason the Diamondbacks, and look, they're not, they're not a – they're not tearing up the cover off the ball. But the reason they're sitting atop the NL West or close to the top of the NL West is because when they get on base, they just cause havoc. They just run like crazy. I don't think they're that great a baseball team. They just run like crazy and cause hell on pitchers. Cardinals don't really do that. Right now, they're just station to station. They're not hitting for a ton of power. I want to see them get aggressive in this series. I, I want to see them trying to steal more bases, set the tone here in game one, and then hopefully that can just lead to kind of a snowball building in the right direction for the Cardinals. From the 636, Ferrario, I don't think you want the Cardinals quote playoff mentality touche well played technically they already have that coming up in 15 minutes we'll get to questions and answers but next city was fortunate to be in that game on saturday night much less to get a point out of it roman berkey had some really compelling comments afterwards we'll let you hear that coming up next here on 101 espn all these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's Ordom who makes no mistake this time. The two players who just missed golden chances creating another and St. Louis again lead away from home rubio around the corner it's Barrios. can he do it again he has late drama late equalizer off the right boot of michael Barrios yet again it's 1-1 and there's still six minutes left to play i feel empty a little bit disappointed because i think this team is not as good as we made them colorado um i think we missed a lot today when it comes with the ball and against the ball. If you're up 1-0, you just have to fight for, for for the win, you know. You have to go all in and you have to fight, you have to defend. Today, not everybody was defending or not together. And that's the result and uh, that's why I'm a little bit disappointed. That audio courtesy of Apple TV, that voice you just heard was Roman Berkey. He was very frustrated after the tie, the draw Uh-oh. on Saturday night between St. Louis City SC and the Colorado Rapids. Alex, Colorado finished the game with 21 shots, 13 of which were directed on net. Roman Berkey did everything he could to give St. Louis the opportunity to win that game. And frankly, they probably should have found a way to win that game. So I understand why he was frustrated. He then continued. He wasn't done there. That wasn't the only thing that he had to say. He was frustrated specifically with their defense. Alex, when you hear this, think about what happened in the Blues season and think about how that applies to this. We didn't defend good in the first half, and we went into the halftime with a 0-0, um, a little bit lucky. In the second half, um, we changed something, but not really big things. So um, I tried to tell them, like, come on, guys, 
we try our best in the back four, you know, we tried our best, we tried to defend and everything and then it's just, I think it was like a little bit, some uh, some guys on the field were just like, oh, the back line, the back line is going to take care of it anyways, you know, so a little bit like, just not enough, I mean, uh, we have one point, but for me it loses, uh, it, it feels like a loss uh, and that's why I'm a little bit yeah, emotional. I love Roman Berkey just from this comment right here. I, I love it. Because, frankly, he is exactly speaking what happened to the Blues. and jo- Like, that is Jordan Binnington wanting to say what took place with the team in front of him. Now, you can be a little caught off guard by one player singling out a couple of players and basically saying, we talked about it and they didn't put any effort in. But Roman Berkey backed it up. Roman Berkey was keeping you alive and making sure that you walked away with a tie in He's that Alexi game. He's Alexi Torbchenko, but yeah. in Jordan Bennington's body. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that was the best comment that you can ask for to where he essentially said our back four said, we've they'll figure this out. They'll take care of it. And that's too passive if you want to win games and the fact that he's sitting there saying, yeah, we got a point, but who cares that other one matters. That's leadership right there. And frankly, now I'm more curious how they look coming into the next game, because that's when you get the crossroads of does your team back away when one guy calls you out or do you follow that up and say, yep, we're on board with this guy. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they play defensively. Cause I, I think three of the last four games or four of the last five, the defenses look pretty shaky at, at best. And, and really they hadn't had to use Berkey a lot, but this past weekend was the example of why you pay him to be the highest paid goalie in the MLS. I mean, he was phenomenal. I mean, at, at halftime, he was getting close to having a season high in saves. I think he had seven saves in the first half, and then he ends up finishing with a season high of 12. So, like, he was awesome. He's the only reason they end up even with a tie in that game. And it's been multiple occasions this year, uh, I think three, four, maybe even five games, where he's either been so good in the first half that he buys city time to get the offense going or he does enough to where he's able to stop some momentum in a second half where a team builds momentum early gets enough stops and then city ends up putting in that dagger goal or in this case he was great in the first half bought some time for that first goal and then did everything in his power but the defense was just too loose in front of him i I think defensively city's been too shaky the last handful of games that it's almost a little alarming I, i haven't seen them and I don't think you really ever saw them during the winning streak when things started. The defense wasn't ever on focus because the offense was dominating. They were doing the high press. They were just keeping teams off balance, and they were really just taking, doing like the Army quote, take the knife and jam it through their throat to finish them off. Well, when they get into the altitude and when they start facing teams that are better defensively and the defense is put more on a test, so far, my opinion, they're close to failing those tests. I, I did not think they were very good over the I, weekend. I don't know if anybody took that the other way of like, oh, you shouldn't be calling out his team. And if they did, I haven't seen any of that they shouldn't. They shouldn't because, and if the players look at this as him calling us out or singling them out, you shouldn't because this is what you, what you want from your leader. You don't want to settle and say, we got a point out of this. You want to look at this and say, yeah, there are certain guys that are not playing up to the level of competition that we need on this team. We've got standards. And if you don't meet them, figure it out. Yeah, I I don't think anybody has any issues with the comments from Berkey. I I do think that you should have issues sometimes with the defense that City is playing. Um, I understand what their style is, and that's going to lead to more opportunities going the other direction. It's all again getting back to the cross sports comparison. Like it does have some similarities to being a rush team in the NHL, where it's going to op- it's going to result in some 
odd man rushes going the other way and you need your goalie in either sport to be able to come up with some save opportunities as a result of that. That being said, it should not look as porous as it has at times over the last few weeks. And I think some of this, not all of it, but some of it can be explained by their lack of depth. You're without Blom right now, and I, I do think they look a little underhanded at times lately, especially when it comes to their defense. And I think at times they're they're a little slow on, on when it comes to their defense. So I will be curious to see what it looks like when they're not in the altitude. They've played in the altitude now, what is it, two of the last like four weeks or so. Yeah. They had Utah, they had the Salt Lake game, and then they had this one in Colorado as well. You you got to take that into account. That does matter. It does impact the players. So um, they were able to get a point out of it. That's a positive. They're still at the top of the table right now in the West. Another positive. But it was a frustrating game to watch, given what the opportunities could have been there. Especially, I mean, you were up late. Yeah. You had the opportunity to be able to close that thing out, and they weren't able to do it. And something else just to keep an eye on, and I know he left the game hurt. Uh, but Klaus has really gone quiet for City's offense. I and think it's, pot- uh, he got hurt. He left the game hurt in that one. And I know, um, that's why I'm kind of like just cautionary tale here of, okay, let's see. I haven't seen an update on him, um, but let's see what he looks like. They're, they play tomorrow night, I believe, or Wednesday in the U.S. Open Cup. Um, so we'll see if he's available for that game. T-Bone, as somebody who's not a big. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, essentially, MLS. it's a. Uh, me guy yes yes ferrario what are is, they gonna play their real team in that yeah what is they what is probably that probably will yes okay. uh this is essentially a u.s uh tournament with every team that's a professional team plays in it uh it's basically a in-season tournament it's, it's what the nba's want to do an in-season tournament except it would be if they included like the g league in the tournament this is like the olympics for hockey no, no. Okay. This is like uh, the FA Cup over in England. It's just a U.S. tournament with every professional team that's MLS and lower leagues that all come together in it. When St. Louis had a team that was in the US, USL, they would play MLS teams. I think they won a handful of them, too. So it's just one of those. Um, but I do think they are going to play most of their starters. And honestly, they probably should after their last game. Bradley Carnell probably want to tinker with some stuff. So I would expect them to play some of their starters. Interesting. But the reason I mentioned Klaus is because the last handful of games, remember, he got off to the tour to start. He has not scored in four straight games. Excuse me, five straight games. Um, he he looked his he looked at like that was his worst game. You didn't notice Klaus. Yes, or another game against Colorado. And again, that could be maybe he was dealing with that injury that he ended up leaving that game for, but he was not noticeable, and he's gone kind of cold. And I'm not saying he's got to score every game, but he has not seemed to play his best soccer the last couple. Well, this team's narrative is pretty obvious. Their best defense is offense, and if you're not having the offensive numbers or the yep. possession time that they're used to having, then your defense is going to suffer. Final thing here, we'll get out of here on this. Uh, the XFL for St. Louis uh, Battlehawks ended its season on... <laughs> Saturday. Uh, they didn't get a win. They posted the most points in the XFL's history. Oh, well, that's good. That's got to help them. Unfortunately, despite going 7-3 and three and finishing with the fourth-best fourth record in the XFL, they were not one of the four teams that was able to qualify for the XFL's postseason. Now, you may be asking, why is that? Well, it's very simple. The XFL has a horrendous way of determining who's going to make the postseason. They have two divisions with an eight team league which is stupid and they have decided that the top two teams in each league those will be the ones that are represented in the playoffs you should not do this of course because you only have eight teams in your league and there's no reason to have divisions whatsoever you should take the top four best records which would include the battle hawks in that scenario uh unfortunately they didn't do that so the four and six 
Arlington Renegades are going to be representing the South Division in the postseason. Tanner and I are thinking the same thing. They Let them all play. Oh, no, no, this is not the NBA. It's it's absurd. It's a stupid way to go about it. Next year, if the XFL is back, the XFL is expected to be back. Uh, they should not do it this way. They should have one hey. league, no divisions, and just take the four best records, reseed when you get there. Pure at, chaos. As we, as we learn, though, from Talladega Nights. If you ain't first, you're last. I, it doesn't make any I'd sense. I'd say put them all in. In 10 minutes, we're Calm talking down. to Katie Wu, the Cardinals Adam insider Silver. for The Athletic. But coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. 9646 is the air covered service tax line for questions and answers. Let's start with this from the 636. Guys, if Edmonton doesn't win a cup this year, do you think it's possible that McDavid or Dreisaitl consider a trade request? No. I don't think there's any way possible that either of those guys consider a trade request. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Dreisaitl's a UFA before McDavid's a UFA. But no, I mean, those two are going to be there long term, specifically McDavid. I mean, you're like the king of Canada right now. So, no, they won't get they won't get moved. What will be interesting is what they have to do with Darnell Nurse, because he was like the subject of a lot of people talking in their game last night because he was on the ice for the three goals against. He's due twelve million dollars next season, not the AAV, but they're paying him twelve million dollars and he has not played like a number one defenseman. But no, I don't even see any moves for them other than figuring out what the hell to do with goaltending next year. They've got three years left under contract, I guess, two years after this season with uh, dry sidle three years after the season with McDavid. Now you're not going to be able to keep both of those guys unless that cap skyrockets, or you're going to have to move on from certain players that you have on your yeah, deal. Probably the latter. I mean, I'm I'm not moving yeah. on from either of no, those two God players. No. If you have the opportunity to keep two generational players, you do exactly that. Yeah. Even if McDavid did request a trade, I would say cool. <laughs> you're here. Dry sidle did request a trade. Cool. You're under contract. Like if you're Mc- I will see you at training camp. Like if you're McDavid, where would you request a trade to go to? Like, sure, you want to go somewhere that you could win, but the other team is going to be worse to acquire you because they're going to have to sell off assets. So, like, you're just not going to be able to accomplish I that. mean, I, I get it. Like, if they want to move somewhere else because they don't have a goalie and they haven't for their entire careers, mm-hmm. cool. I understand that. But if you're the Edmonton Oilers, you're not moving on from either no, of those God two players. No. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. Guys, if the Cardinals were to take three out of four from the Giants, how much would that alleviate the worries that you have currently about this team? Uh, it would make me feel better because the Cardinals would be playing better, but the Cardinals are also going up against a terrible team right now. Giants aren't very good. Um, and so it, it would just do that. It would just make me feel better, but it wouldn't alleviate my concerns. I... I am on the less pessimistic side among Cardinals fans. I still think this team is going to be quite good this season. 
But this one series against the Giants taking three out of four wouldn't really change that. Yeah, no, three of four against the Giants, not going to change much. Maybe the Dodgers series. If you talk about winning that series, then I'll feel a little bit better. But three of four against the Giants is going to be the same way I felt about how you exited that Colorado Rockies series. Cool, but do it against a competent opponent. Uh, next one up, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 618. Guys, who would be your favorite right now to win the Stanley Cup this year? Ooh. Um, Boston still. Uh, uh, Boston looks like a well-oiled machine, and they're still playing without Patrice Bergeron. Tomorrow will be Bergeron's first game back, and it'll probably be the clincher. A team from the West? Man, everybody... I've been super impressed by anybody. Everybody has been super close. To be honest with you, if Seattle gets past Colorado, which is going to be tough because Colorado's starting to come back, but if Seattle gets past Colorado, I'd say Seattle's going to be probably the most dangerous team because they're going to have the most confidence coming out of the first round. I, I would agree with that Seattle take because I, I, Seattle to me has been the most impressive. I, I Otherwise, I kind of agree with BK. Everybody else has just kind of been blah. I mean, I, I would probably say LLA had they held on to win that game last yeah, that night. Was a bad, that was a bad game for but them. But then when they fell apart after 3-0, then, I, then I, I don't know. I just can't buy back into them. Out of the East... <sighs> I'd probably say Boston. Yeah, and even, your Florida Panthers. Nah, Florida you know, in five. They, they, they still got a chance, though. Not but in five. No, nah, Boston's looked really good. I, I was worried that, you know, they may lay an egg in that first series after a President's Trophy, and especially with the guys that were out because of the They're sickness amazing. that went through. Turns out the team that was on yeah. a historic pace all season is really Who would have thunk? Yeah, yeah. Well, Blues won a President's Trophy once, and we'll ask Blues fans how that wasn't went. wasn't as good as this team. Well, um, Might have been better. Yeah, see? They had like four Hall of Famers on that team. So does this team. Yeah. They got like one Hall of Famer on this team. <laughs> uh, Maple Leafs versus the Lightning. The winner of that series, to go different than what you guys said, I'll go with that team. Um, I think it's going to be Toronto, but I mean, this this series feels like it's going to go seven. See, if Tampa wins that series, I think Tampa's going to probably get bounced in the second round because you can see fatigue on that team. But I also would b- imagine there's a lot of incentives to take down Toronto if you're Tampa in the first round. But I mean, both teams, whomever comes out of that first round is going to be a tough ask, too. Coming up next, Katie Wu, the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. Want to ask her what she learned from the Cardinals series over the weekend. Also want to find out what she thinks the role is going to be for Paul DeYoung. Looked great yesterday. Is he going to continue seeing the field regularly? We'll talk to Katie Wu about that coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. It is time for our favorite interview that we do every week. It is on Mondays. It is with Katie Wu, the Cardinals insider for the athletic. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie J Wu. As, as we said, you can find her work over on the athletic. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. I hope you enjoyed your weekend following the Cardinals in Seattle. How are you doing today? I'm good, guys. How are you? Nice to be uh, coming to you live from the Bay area. Always a fun road trip of mine on Get to go home, see some friends, watch some baseball in the ballpark I grew up going to. And uh, Cardinals certainly showed a, a nice bit of a turnaround yesterday. Hopefully uh, for the fans' sake and for their sake, they can keep it up. I know that you're obviously a little biased given the fact that it is your hometown, but is San Francisco your favorite park to visit in Major League Baseball? Um, oh, this is a good question. I love Oracle Park. I think it is gorgeous. I think it is beautiful. I also think it is freezing cold in April, <laughs> so it does lose some points for me there. 
Um, but it's definitely top two or three just for the views and I think the nostalgia and of course my family and friends come out. So I always joke to my editor who also is in the Bay Area. Uh, hey, I'm going to try really hard to get some stuff done, but um, I have a lot of temptations, and of course that does not fly. So, As a follow-up on that, what, what else is in that team picture? Like, What, what are the other ballparks that are can't-miss for Katie Wu? Petco Park, for sure, in San Diego. Uh, there's It's just a, a gorgeous stadium, and the weather is always great. Wrigley, if you've never caught a game at Wrigley, I know... Uh, Cardinals Cubs. It's just an electric atmosphere, but I just love the the history of Wrigley Field and uh, of course Fenway. I went to Fenway for the first time last summer. I'm really looking forward to going again. But definitely three super special ballparks right there. All right, Katie, that was the good. Now we get to the bad. Um, what's going on <laughs> with the Cardinals? Why can't they win? Why can't they find a way to play more consistent baseball? I I don't understand this team. I I continue to believe that they're a good team. I continue to believe they're going to win the NL Central. And then yet I watch all of the games and they don't look right now like a team that's going to win at the NL Central. How do you how do you place your finger on what's gone wrong for this team so far this season? Yeah, I'm continuously confused watching this Cardinals team, (laughs) because when you look at them and you look at the talent they have on paper and the names and how they can construct their lineup and all the depth that they have. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is probably the most overall talented team the Cardinals have put out on paper in the last four to five years. And they cannot find a way to win more than two games in a row. They have not been able to find any consistency. And it's not like one place has been lacking more than the other. It it seems, you know, when the pitching is great, the offense isn't. When the offense is struggling, the pitching is over here giving up a ton of runs, too. It's so perplexing to watch this team because I think everyone can agree they are a lot better than how they've played. They just haven't been able to figure out how to win consistently. And it's not like this team is coming in with a ton of, of new players with a ton of lack of experience. I mean, there are guys that have been on this team and playing in this organization and playing baseball for years and years. They, you know, there's a group of proven winners, and April certainly has not gone off to a good start. I think they're hopeful that they can right their own ship against the Giants team that's struggling in their own ways. Uh, but, yeah, certainly when you look at the first three weeks of baseball, it's not at all what I think anyone envisioned the Cardinals looking like. Katie, we've uh, heard a ton of Cardinals fans already today talking and complaining about the leadership style of Ali Marmol and questioning his management. Surprise, surprise. Who would think that could happen? Uh, what would you say uh, or how would you view Ali Marmol's job early on this season? I think anytime the team is struggling, it's human nature to put it on the manager, especially when, the again, we think about the players that are on the Cardinals roster. I think that is not necessarily a problem specific to the Cardinals, but just what's happened in sports. If a team is underperforming, it's easy to go and blame the manager or blame the coaching staff. Um, but I don't think there's any kind of jeopardy regarding Ollie's job at all. Um, I know we're getting really tired of hearing it. I'm tired of saying it. When I say that it's early in the season, it's only been a few weeks, it's a long season, et cetera, et cetera, all the cliches. But I don't think there's any question about his leadership style. There certainly wasn't last year. He's managing the exact same way. It's just a really unfortunate slump that the Cardinals are in, especially to start the season. I actually thought Ollie described it pretty well earlier last week when he said part of the reason why people have been so disappointed and frustrated from a fan perspective is because it was early in the season. And the Cardinals did have a great spring. And you had all these guys coming back from the World Baseball Classic. You were excited about what the year could look like. And they came out super flat and super inconsistent. So, yes, by by human nature, that looks like to be a mark on the manager. But from an internal perspective, there doesn't seem to be any issues with Ollie Marmel. Again, it's just kind of this this hard-to-explain lack of consistent rut the Cardinals are in right now. Katie, part of this is just 
Nolan Arnato and Paul Goldschmidt haven't been hitting for power. And I can't totally explain that one either. We've had some people on the text line that have said that Nolan Arnato looks hurt and he's not finishing his swing. I, I don't know if I've really noticed that. I think he looks mostly fine. He looks frustrated, um, but he has one extra base hit in his last 10 games. You look at Paul Goldschmidt in his last seven games. He has one game where he hit four extra bases. Are you seeing anything from those guys? Have you heard anything about those guys? Is it just like a weird slump that they're in right now? How do you explain it for those two players in particular? Yeah, that's funny because I was watching the games over the weekend and I thought to myself, like, when did the Cardinals become a singles-only team? Um, where it just feels like everyone is only hitting for singles and maybe that's some of the problems that, we, uh, that we've seen with their lack of ability to score with runners in scoring position. And it seems like the power, unless your name is Nolan Gorbin, is down across the charts. And I think Paul Goldschmidt always starts a little slow in April. Uh, he did last year. Again, that worked out just fine for him by the end of the year. It is a little bit perplexing to see Nolan come out and not really hit for the power like he's he's used to, but I don't think there's anything there. I think it's just, again, whatever like hex or curse was put on the Cardinals before the season, it's really working because you look at every single area and it's just so perplexing on why things aren't going well and why things aren't you know, projecting how they should on paper. So I don't think of anything going on with Goldie or Nolan Arenado. If you Cardinals fans do want um, some optimism, those two guys absolutely raked against San Francisco during their tenure in the NL West. Um, if there's one team that the bats are going to come alive for, for Goldschmidt and the Nolan, it is the Giants. Um, so if we don't see any home runs or doubles or extra base hits from them at, during the series, then I think we can panic a little bit, but... No, nothing too serious at all for those two, I don't think. Katie, we call that the BKO because BK comped this team to the 2004 Cardinals team at the beginning of uh, spring training. So we call that the BKO effect as to what's going on right now. It hasn't worked, though, on Nolan Gorman, who he tried to trade last season, Katie. (laughs) Nolan Gorman has been (laughs) raking this season, and we saw him get bumped up into the lineup yesterday. Could Could that be a regular occurrence with one of the hottest hitters on this team right now? You know, that's a good question. I just love the BKO effect. Anytime, don't we all, Katie? Unless it works time. against you. I, I don't. I don't love it at all. It's not fun <laughs> for me. Um, I think so. I, I mean, when you look at Nolan Gorbin, I don't think it's any question in terms of most consistent hitter for the Cardinals right now. I think that's him. The dude that's really locked in, that can really hit for power, and that's part of the reason why the Cardinals were so hesitant to trade him in a certain deal that could have happened around the trade deadline that we won't mention for a, an outfielder that perhaps used to play for the Nationals. That's now batting but, below 200 this season. Again. Harper? Weird. Baseball's weird. But um, when you have a lefty hitter that is still so moldable, like Nolan Gorman's only 22 years old. I forgot about that. I, I just feel like, you know, all these guys are they're so, so young and still have so much molding and potential. But when you have a guy that is young and has that ability to hit from the left-hand side, and profile for 30 homers a year, you hold on to that talent and you ride through the rust, especially through his rookie year as he's all about adjusting. Um, and, and you keep him and you see what you got. And I think what the Cardinals have right now is another option that they can put in the two, three, four area of their lineup. Um, Goldschmidt in 2021 hit from the two side or the two hole throughout the second half of the season. I know Goldschmidt likes hitting fourth and Contreras the first to hit fifth, but I like Gorman in the third hole against certain lineups. And I think that that's uh, another one of the many many uh, lineup combinations that Ollie Marmel could use, but certainly if Nolan Gorman can keep this up and all signs indicate that he can, I could easily see him going higher in the lineup. We're talking to Katie Wu of The Athletic here on 101 ESPN. Give her a follow on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. 
Katie, we got to get to the topic that everybody, of course, is discussing after his game yesterday, and that's Paul DeYoung. Three <laughs> for four in his return to the line. It paid a home run, and I know every Cardinals fan was thrilled to see it for him. Are we going to see Paul DeYoung regularly in this lineup? What do you expect his role to be now that he's back with the big league club? I would expect Paul DeYoung's playing time to kind of mirror what Ollie Marmol has done with the outfield. And it's funny because I think there's a lot of uh, frustration over what outfielder is sitting and, and there's no kind of like, you know, if you see a, a three person outfield on Friday, you are not seeing that same outfield the next day. That's just kind of what's going on with all the combinations. I think that that was the same thing that Ollie will do with the middle infield. Um, a bat that you can't take out of the lineup right now is Gorman, like we talked about. So whether that's DH or second base, you know, he's kind of a lock there. Tommy Edmond was a fine shortstop. He's a good shortstop actually. But his better position is still second base, so there's kind of a log jam there. What are you going to do with Brendan Donovan, who seems to be like the versatile, he can do everything role, while still finding consistent playing time for Paul? Um, you can't. So I think there's going to be a lot of rotating pieces for those guys, those four. But certainly if Paul DeYoung can continue hitting, and I know it's only been one game, so we don't want to sound the alarms and, and do the whole, oh my gosh, 2019, he's back. But he certainly looks good in that first game. We'll give him a couple of weeks, and I think throughout the next couple of weeks that will dictate what the Cardinals think about their middle infield, the different kind of variations they can do with their hybrid players in between the infield and the outfield. But I would expect the playing time for the middle infield, especially Paul, to, again, fluctuate and resemble what Ollie Marmel is doing with the outfield. Well, well, Katie, spe- in other words, no consistency. Oh, it's yeah, okay. which is spot on probably with all of this. But the, the other player that Tanner was on board with last week of being back, and I officially joined that after his start yesterday, was Jack Flaherty. Are you at the point with Jack Flaherty where maybe the doubt is behind you? Yes. Um, and I know that it's it's hard because the pitching in its own way has just been really hard to get behind. I mean, what well, Jack's start yesterday, which he looks great, nine strikeouts, six innings. That was a quality start. It's been a minute since we've seen one of those. Um, but I think especially as Jack continues to find his groove and, and where he's able to kind of shed that I was hurt for the past two years narrative, we're seeing more and more on what the Cardinals are banking on. I think his next start, which will be Friday in L.A., It'll have been almost two years since he suffered that oblique strain at Dodger Stadium. I don't know. I can just feel it building as, I think, a a season-turning start for Jack. He certainly looks to have all of the pieces the Cardinals were hoping for, that he was hoping for. After his first two starts, he's looked incrementally better each time. I thought yesterday was his best time out, was able to get through that rough second inning and settle down for the rest of the outing. Um, Certainly encouraging. Obviously, Miles Michaelis' year hasn't gone off to the start that he wanted. So to have Jack be able to do that, I think it's a... I think it's almost time to get back on the clarity train. All right, final question. We'll get you out of here on this one, Katie. Tomorrow, Jake Woodford is scheduled to start for the Cardinals. Bold prediction time from you. Is that his final start for the Cardinals this year? This year? Yeah. Mm, I'm going to go with no, just because he will spot start, and he's more than capable of giving you five quality innings and giving you a chance to win. Um, I think it's probably his last start, this turn through the rotation. I, Adam Wainwright is more or less almost set to come back after one more rehab start. Of course, these things could change. It's always uh, nothing's guaranteed coming back from injury, obviously. But I think even if Jake is the guy out of the rotation, which he likely is, when Adam comes back, we'll still see him pick up a spot start down the road. Um, that's kind of his role, right? That's six-man, swing man. He can kind of do whatever role that you need him to. So. No, I know that does not mean I don't think Matthew Libertor is ever coming up. I just would anticipate 
that Woodford would get another start at some point throughout the rest of the season. That's fair. What were the returns, just out of curiosity, on on Wayno's rehab start? Did you hear anything on that? I know the velocity was down a little bit, and we talked a lot about that during the spring. Yeah, you know, velocity was... uh, When you're going through a rehab start, you're mostly working on, okay, can I finish my pitches? Do I have my arsenal back? What feels good? So I'm not too worried about the velocity. Um, We'll see it again on his next rehab start coming up this week. He's going on the road with Springfield. Um, But I would also, velocity readings in minor league ballparks aren't always the most uh, accurate. So I'll pump the brakes on the velocity check for now, but certainly something to keep an eye on, especially when he comes back. If he can throw 89, 88 and spot the off seed, that's all right. But if he's throwing 86 down the middle, that's not going to play. So we'll see. Yeah, turns out. Katie, appreciate the time as always. We'll be reading your work over at The Athletic. We'll be following Katie Wu on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. Enjoy yourself out in San Francisco. The Bay Area is always great this time of the year, I hear. We'll talk with you again next week. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. You got it. That's Katie Wu joining us here on 101 ESPN, as she does each and every Monday here on the show. Alex, do you think this is going to be Woodford's last start? This season? Mm -hmm. No, I'm kind of in the same sense as her as uh, I, I feel like you'll you'll see a hand, not a handful, maybe two or three more just because of a, you know, doubleheader that's thrown in there. Maybe you got to get somebody or an injury pops up. I, I'd say after this next start, the majority of starts by the end of the season will be in favor of Matthew Libertor over Jake Woodford. See, that's what that's where I was leaning is like, but I still think Jake's going to get at least another start or two. Maybe I, I was wondering if the Cardinals decide you know what let's flip him over to the bullpen where he's he's probably better suited to be a reliever if we're being totally honest and if he ends up in that role do you see a Matthew Liberator and then potentially either a Gordon Graceffo or a Michael McGreevy who are both now in AAA as well do you see them later on this season as well those are the ones that I'm very curious about is how they play into this mix not obviously in April, but as we get closer to June or July and they get a little bit more experience under their belts uh, down in the AAA, I, those are the ones that I find to be very curious. I I would take the under on like two and a half starts for Jake Woodford the rest of the way, but I, the, maybe he gets one more after this. Maybe he does end up making another start in like May if they have a doubleheader or something. Yeah, the only reason I don't think it would be as last is because they've elected to go with him this time around over at Libertor because if there was a time they were going to do this, and I think we talked about this last week, and I was skeptical if they would call up Libertor to fly out west, make one start, and then go back down to the minor leagues just so th- this way they could keep him in his rhythm. This would have been the game that you would call him up and just take Woodford out of the rotation because we mentioned it. The Giants are terrible against left-handed pitching, and if there was ever a start that you wanted Libertor to come in and see what he looks like and try and build some confidence at the major league level, this felt like that spot. And the the fact of the matter that they decided to keep him in AAA and go back to Woodford, that's the reason why I just think still they're going to view him as the guy that they turn to for spot starts. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll play a game of in or out here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Train Heating and Cooling. Visit traininfo.com. It's hard to stop a train. All right, let's get
get into in or out, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for in or out. Guys, let's start with this one. In or out, both Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado finished the year with at least 30 home runs. Do you want to say it or do you want me to? You can say it. I'm in. Both of them are going to get there. It's all right, guys. They're not old. They didn't lose all their power. They're still eating their Wheaties. They still got their protein shakes after the games. They're fine. My Nolan Arenado MVP vote is still out there, and it's going to happen. So I'm going to say I'm in on this. They better hit the weight room because uh, don't need to. Their slugging percentage is way down the last two months of baseball. As going back to September. Said, it's all in the hips. It's all in the hips. T-Bone doesn't get that reference. I don't, but I'll I'll take your word for it. I'm going to say in for now, but ask me in two, three weeks, because if they're still not hitting for power, I'm going to be out, because this is a trend to keep an eye on, because it's been since September that they've quit hitting for power, and I'm not saying that uh, Father Time's catching up, but power is usually one of those things that goes, and if Goldie doesn't hit home runs or Arnado doesn't hit home runs, I don't think I think Arnado's home run will be back. Goldie's the one I'm monitoring. If he doesn't hit home runs, he's not He's not as valuable as he has been in the years past. Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt, yes, they're going to hit 30 home runs this season. <laughs> Nolan Arenado! Nolan Arenado in each of the last seven full major league seasons, so discounting the 2020 season, has finished with at least 30 home runs in six of the last seven full seasons. Got helped by Cora. Paul Goldschmidt has hit at least 30 home runs. These guys are not suddenly bad players. They've had a really weird start to the season. Both of them have. They're going to hit 30 home runs this season. And honestly, a big fix for the Cardinals offense is that like it is as simple as those two guys getting back on track. We saw this in the postseason last year. Now, this is also part of the concern. The Cardinals identity is wrapped into two future Hall of Fame players. And if they don't perform well, well, then your team isn't going to perform well. And right now they're not playing that well. So it, it is pretty simple. It's frustrating. But if those guys don't start hitting, Cardinals ain't going to start winning. I'm going to be willing to bet that they're going to start hitting. I'm with you. Co-MVPs by the end of the season. Alex, what do you got for in or out? Guys, in or out, the NHL officials have officially become the <gasps> biggest nuisance to their sport in all pro sports. Oh, in, in. I mean, I mean, let them play. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to a lot of these games, but... I'm a hockey guy now. Of course I That's true. Been. You are. I've heard that about you. You have an Excel sheet to prove it. All right. These officials have been calling the worst timing penalties that I've seen in the playoffs since I don't know when. It's been brutal. And look, I understand the NBA officials are not great either. The ticky-tack calls that they call nonstop, even in college basketball, if you want to go that route. Remember the refs ruined the Super Bowl. That's true, they did. They ruined them because of that call that should have been made, BK. Yeah, Brandon. But the NHL officials, in my opinion, are ruining playoff hockey. And they have become the biggest nuisance in all of pro sports. So I'm in on this, if that surprised any of you. I, I'm in because I, I look, the playoffs, it used to be you only called the obvious tripping in the delay a game mm-hmm. and the obvious high stick. Now they're calling everything like it's a regular season hockey. And look, I, I understand that uh, Gary Bettman actually likes this because he likes seeing offense. I personally like it when the postseason is more tight hockey, tight defensively. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's why I love that's why I love NBA playoffs, because I think in the playoffs, you actually see those guys can play defense, unlike in the regular season when they stand around half the time. <laughs> uh, but I, that 
I, I want to see less penalties. I want to see less power plays. I want to see more skill five on five. And I, and I think this has been a trend the last two, maybe three playoffs. So I, I'm in. I'm I'm tired of all these easy calls officials are making. Do you guys know on average how many penalties are being called per game? Too damn many. <laughs> you were right with the first word that you said. Two. There's an average of one penalty being called per team That's too many. per game. Ugh. I think sometimes Let these them play. Are, are there individual moments in which the penalties are a problem? Absolutely. Specifically sure. yesterday's game between Edmonton and L.A. If you want to look to that series and say penalties have impacted it more than you would like to see, I think that's totally reasonable. I, I think Edmonton has been helped by the way that those games have been officiated. I don't think that the games overall, though, have been particularly poorly officiated there in been, general. There have been 31 penalties, 31 more play opportunities in four games between the Islanders and the Hurricanes. There have been to what there have. I'm looking at power play opportunities. Carolina has had 19 of them in four games in the playoffs so far this year. The Islanders have had 12 in four games. The Minnesota Wild and Dallas Stars game. There have been 33 power play opportunities combined in four games like it is ridiculous how many power plays are being allowed right now stop in the playoffs penalties very simple <laughs> stop calling them stop being so ticky tacky yeah stop being so we all know what pass interference in the playoffs or the Look, super bowl man, i mean you don't have to use the whistle every time yeah you can put the whistle down every once in a while you don't have to be the star of the show yeah i never go to a hockey game wanting to look at the zebra you like watching goals right no. No. Not in oh, this you type don't. of I'm not, not, a, these I'm games. not an offensive you know, fan. You know what has actually gone gone wrong in these games? Goalies suck. Wrong? Well, that's very apparent. Yeah. That, that's actually what goalies I was going to say. Goalies are trash right now. What do they always say? Your best penalty killer is your goalie? Yeah. Well, there are right now 10 power play units that are above 20% so far in this postseason. <laughs> 10. If you're looking at the penalty kills, they've been atrocious. So you know what's gone wrong here? These good old-fashioned NHL teams, they don't have penalty kills. They're, they're, stop taking penalties because you're soft. And, and stop being terrible on the penalty kill. There was, there was a play last night where Mason Marchment got called for a tripping on Marcus Foligno. And Marcus Foligno went flying at Mason Marchment, left his skates to check him in the head, and then fell down, and they called a tripping on Marchment. What are we doing? He didn't even touch him. By the way, I think I got my stat wrong. Yeah, I know you did, yeah, I was going to say, there's no way yeah, there's just been two penalties I'm like, game. dude, there were 35 power play opportunities and four games for these two teams. What's I, the actual number? I was counting up yeah, the what's penalties, the number? and I, I think NHL.com had it very wrong. What's I it? don't know. It's a lot. It's there too are, damn many. That's there, what it is. There were 19 power play opportunities for the Carolina Hurricanes. That's already too many in four games. That's nearly five a game. Yeah. I, it's It's been a lot more than what I said. <laughs> Step boy. <laughs> Step boy. To the rescue. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the Dallas Stars have taken 25 penalties so far. That's so. too many. Step more to the rescue. Put the whistles away. Literally just the Stars versus the Wild. Just that series alone <laughs> would have attributed to what I said. I don't know where I got. I'm so sorry. Step <laughs> boy. When I saw that, I was like, man, that feels really light. He heard me say 35 penalties at four games. Like, wait, what? Well, when he said two, I was like, that can't be because I swear I read something not too long ago. Most penalties have been called. His response when I said. There's been 35. He goes, wait, what? <laughs> you want to know what I ended up counting? What? I'm sorry. Like, I'm just going to admit it because it's ridiculous. I just had one of the worst moments I've ever had on live radio. Nah, nah we can find more. So uh, I went by the P instead of the P. I 
You know what that stands for, Alex? Yeah, I do, buddy. <laughs> I do. It's points. Thanks. They've combined for an average of two points per game. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> that that's great to know. <laughs> I, I honestly have never been more embarrassed. I've never uh. been more embarrassed by anything that I have done on the radio. I'm blaming Mucinex. I sound better, I think, today. I've had less oh, coughing. I think I gave myself food poisoning last night, so I've been <laughs> I've been battling it too. I, I will say, I promise you, I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. Alex sometimes disagrees with that assessment. I was dead ass wrong right there. Well, <laughs> gave a terrible you, stat. You can't really back that one anymore, man. <laughs> Someone texted at 636. He was so confident, too. His whole stance was like, yeah, there's only been an average of two per game. Step boy. Step boy. T-Bone, what do you got for in or out? Uh, in or out. In or out. PK should stay away from the stats. Oh, God, here come the coughing fits. In or out. One of Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, or Milwaukee make the playoffs Out. this year. This is dumb. What are we doing here? <laughs> this. Milwaukee just lost one of their best players for the rest of the season. Probably their pitchers two have runs already been hurt Pittsburgh's half of the year. Pittsburgh's never led the, or hasn't led the NL Central since 2013. They stink. <laughs> this team ain't good, man. I know. I know. Look at their record, though, BK. All right. Talk to me in July. Something called uh, Connor Joe. He's 30 years old. He's never been a good Major League Baseball Incredible player. Incredible hair, though. He's batting 357 with an OPS of 1,100. Okay, call wow. me skeptical. I don't think that's yeah, but going to They're doing to all this without O'Neill Cruz. Last year in Colorado, this same Connor Joe character hit 230 with an OPS below 700. That's a pitcher's park, though. He has more wins above replacement this season in 18 games than he had in 111 games last season for Colorado. Colorado, you there can't hit. There has never been a better regression candidate than this year's Pittsburgh Pirates. They're a fun story. I, don't get me wrong. But if you want to buy some Pittsburgh Pirates stock, I got nothing but Pirates stock to sell you. Well, the good news, though, is Vince Velasquez is going to have a great season when he plays the Cardinals yeah, again. Because he's an ace, right, T-Bone? Yeah. Johan Oviedo has a 2.2 ERA. Hey, we yes, always thought he'd be good. Well, the Cardinals did trade him, so that's going to blow up in their face. Alex? Oh, I'm uh, I'm, I'm absolutely out on this. Yeah, you don't think the Pirates or the no. Brewers are going to make the postseason? No. T-Bone, I know, is in what on if, both what of these. What if I, 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 I think you're both down on this team, too. What if I threw in the Cubs in this, too? Yeah, no. I'm in a one of those three could get I, in. Here's the thing, though. I don't think the Cardinals are going to win the NL Central right now. <laughs> I do. And this is why, like, I, I think what we're watching right now, I, Milwaukee is more real. Like what we're seeing from yeah, Milwaukee. When I said, I when I said Cubs in, might I, be real. I, the no. Cubs I'm starting to, they because they're getting good pitching Be, and Bellinger's been really good for them. Yeah, you Go ahead. Buy into that. I please. told you guys that Cody Bellinger would have been good. I mean, the good. guy did win an MVP. And because I, man, no, all of my stats show that his bat is regressing. Yeah, Patrick wisdom. Can't wait for that to sustain nine it, home runs on the season. That's for sure. Going to be real. Absolutely. Very much has real. Sustained I, uh, I'm in that Milwaukee will get in. From the 636. Why does BK hate Connor Joe so much? He's not a good baseball player. It's coming, from the, same guy that wanted, it's coming from the same guy that wanted Ben Gamble, who doesn't even have a job right now. Yeah, how is Ben Gamble hitting right now? Because I've heard Michael Conforto and Cody Bellinger are crushing the baseball. Conforto was terrible last night, by the way. He dropped the ball while running to go catch it. Nobody said he was great defensively. Yeah, well, clearly. Brian Anderson has a 900 OPS for the Brewers. Some of these things, like... I know nobody wants to hear it because I'm Stat Boy and I get Stat Boy all the time. These are real, and there's regression coming for both the Pirates and the Brewers. 
And the Cardinals have regression in a positive way. That's coming their way. Yeah, you were just leaning into this, aren't you? I am saving this in my uh, email right now. At 1237 Mm -hmm. on April 24th, BK says the Pirates and Brewers will regress. We're going to have a great open on the day that one of these teams clinches the NL Central. The last time the Pirates started this good at 16-7, and they won the NL Central. That was 2013, wasn't it? That team was good. Like, actually had good players on it. This one is not. They have a bunch of average. They both have this the is the They're doing without Royals. O'Neal Cruz. I understand. This is the 2003 Royals. Go look up that team. You go tell me what they ended up doing that year. Nah, nah. You were. That's, that's what we're watching right Stat now. Boy we're watching the 2003 like, Royals, but they happen to be playing in the National League. Stat Boy is going to be demoted when uh, one of those teams wins. By it. the way, look at look at what they've done so far in terms of the the teams that they have played. Go look at it. Go look it up. It's right there for you. Coming up next. Speaking <laughs> of regression. <laughs> What's Paul DeYoung doing? What the hell is he <laughs> talking real? about? Is Guess it, who's back? Is he going to be a part of their rotation in the middle infield? Back moving forward? again. Paulie's back. We'll talk about it next year on 101 Hello, ESPN. Friend. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. of hits in this one for DeYoung. He's singled twice. High fly ball. That's hammered deep left center field. Rodriguez back and is gone. Paul DeYoung with a three-hit return has gone deep in Seattle. Oh, it looked good today. Uh, big homer, too, um, for insurance there. Uh, but at the plate, it looked really good. Turned some good double plays, so nice to have him back. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. It was a nice day for Paul DeYoung in his return to the lineup for the St. Louis Cardinals. He got the start at shortstop for the cards and then finished the day three for four with a home run. Oh, he is so back. Good for him. Alex, now this begs the question, what's the role going to be for Paul DeYoung upon his return? Derek Gould wrote the following, quote, DeYoung does not arrive in the majors with any promise of playing time. He will be used as a right-handed option at shortstop, a backup to spell Tommy Edmond, and a late-game glove. The Cardinals expect to use him at shortstop mostly, moving Edmond around while DeYoung is in the game. All of that makes sense. But how often? Here's what Randy Carricker had to say earlier today on the opening drive. But I don't see a scenario in which Paul DeYoung can be a key member of the Cardinals. I really no. don't. It's, and, I feel like it ran its course. Yeah, at I, this I point. agree with you. And whether it's at, to me, he should be third on the shortstop depth chart right now, at best, behind mm-hmm. Edmund and Wynn. And maybe, well, probably not Donovan. But if you look at the infield, though, I think you play Donovan and Gorman ahead of him, too. So the, right now he's number five on your, not theirs, but my Cardinal yeah. infield depth chart. And you're paying him $9 million. So try to find somebody that can. Take him off your hands and maybe get somebody who can start a game for you on the mound. I so I don't think you're getting anybody for Paul DeYoung. Like he he doesn't have any trade value at this point. I think you could get Shohei Otani with him and prospects. Maybe, um, probably actually. I I don't think anybody's trading for Paul DeYoung, and that's okay. Like they don't need to. I I think what you've got here is a replacement for Taylor Motter. That's what he is. He's Taylor Motter than 2. Taylor Why don't you smile when you said it, okay? You now, didn't have to have a smirk on your when face. When did Taylor Motter go three for four this season? He would have gotten there. He never had more than one hit. He went three for four um, with a strikeout. He had four hits in his Cardinals career. <laughs> I 
I do think what you're watching right now is Paul DeYoung is going to take over that utility infield role. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that the overreaction to Paul DeYoung's return has been honestly insane. He's not going to get regular starts for the Cardinals. Now, if he does, we can crush him for it because he shouldn't be getting regular starts for the Cardinals. That's that's not his role. He's like the 13th position player on the team right now. That being said, in Taylor Motter's time here in the big leagues, his first start came on April 4th against the Atlanta Braves. His last one came on April 19th against the Arizona Diamondbacks. So that's over a 15-day stretch. He entered a game seven times. I don't think that seems crazy for Paul DeYoung. Once every three days, he gets an opportunity at a minimum. Now, a decent number of those were either starts where he was replaced midway through or he had one game where he was a pinch hit option. I think that's Paul DeYoung's role. Like, if you get into a late-game situation where Andrew Kisner is in, for example, um, and for whatever reason, Wilson Contreras is not batting DH that day, he's um, a bench bat for you, I... I don't know how this would work specifically, but maybe they used Contreras already in that inning, and now you're going to pinch hit for Andrew Kisner. What, whatever the situation is, like maybe you've got a left-handed bat in there. This is going to be what's frustrating for Cardinals fans. Nolan Gorman is up at the plate against a tough lefty. What they might do in this spot is if you're down to your last right-handed option off of the bench, maybe that's where Paul DeYoung gets an at-bat over Nolan Gorman. I would not do that, but that's the kind of thing that we could see with him. I, I think that's what they're going to do. They're going to use him as the last right-handed bench bat, and occasionally, like once a week maybe, he'll get a start at shortstop. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's how this goes in my eyes. If the bat plays for Paul DeYoung in an extended stretch where you see him, and I believe it's probably only going to be against lefties, but maybe he gets an occasional one against a righty, then you might see a little bit more than Paul DeYoung than you expected because they're thinking, well, if we get some offense from here, that's going to be good for this team. But if the offense goes, then you're looking at a guy who's only going to be a defensive replacement for Tommy Edmond at shortstop. And that's going to come whenever Tommy needs days off, if an injury pops up, or if Tommy needs to shift over to a different position. So I, I truly believe you're looking at a Taylor Motter spot to where maybe it's once a week. Maybe it's once a week where you're getting Paul DeYoung. And if the bat continues to play, then maybe you start to see him a little bit more. But again, I don't know how long of a leash he's going to get in terms of seeing that offense plays. Like, I would imagine they're going to view this after his successful game yesterday and say, do we see if we can keep, do we, do we ride the hot hand here? Do we see if Paul DeYoung can continue? Part of me wonders if they just do it because you bring him up, he hits, maybe let's put him in there and see if he can continue doing it. But if it goes south, if they do go down that path today and he doesn't hit, then you're probably not going to see him for a week. They haven't announced the Giants haven't their starter for tomorrow from what I've seen, but the three starters that they've announced so far in this series are all right-handed. I don't expect him to see any opportunities against any of those three right-handed starters. He now, might play on that fourth game. I'm assuming that's one maybe of the day game are. after day a night game, game and yeah. you get him an opportunity there. That's that's possible. Or if they have a lefty on the mound uh, on Tuesday, may, maybe you see him there with Tommy Edmonds starting at second base. Maybe they do it that way, but Otherwise, like, no, his opportunities will come like Clayton Kershaw. He's starting against you on Saturday. Do I think that's going to go well for Paul DeYoung? <sighs> I do no, not. I do not. But it's a lefty on the mound. And my guess is they will probably take out at least one of Donovan or Gorman from the lineup that day. And you'll probably see him on uh, in the lineup that day. That That's where he's going to get his opportunities. He is essentially for the infield what Dylan Carlson has become for the outfield. You got a lefty starter on the mound. You're getting a guy a day off, something like that. He's a good club. Maybe you put him in late late innings for a defense. That's his role. He is for the infield what Dylan Carlson has become for the outfield.
Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think that's what his role needs to be, and I, I think that's what the Cardinals will do. I hope they don't do that kind of rotation-based thing that Katie had mentioned like they've done with the outfield because, look, I, I just don't – even though yesterday was a good day for Paul DeYoung, I'm not, I'm not buying that his bat is back. I mean, he's going to have to sustain that for almost two months for me to believe his bat and his offensive capabilities are back. Right now he is just kind of that guy that's just basically a fill-in starter. When you need somebody to start one game in a six-game stretch – He's the guy you turn to. Otherwise, I don't, even, I don't even know where he would rank on my list of bats that are coming off the bench. He would have to be the, the absolute same spot last that Taylor Motter was. Yeah, was. he'd have to be the last uh, guy coming off the bench. Do you want DeYoung or Kisner coming off the bench? Kisner. DeYoung. Oh, I would take DeYoung over Kisner. Absolutely. I, I would have taken Motter over Kisner. Kisner's not a major league bat right now. Yeah. I, so, But otherwise, I mean, yeah, he's not going to see a ton of playing time. And, and the reason I say, like, you you uh, posed a question, Alex, does he start tonight? I, I'd say no. I mean, look, last year, let's remember, he had a 10-game stretch when he got called up from AAA, had a 1,200 OPS. After that, for the final 43 games, he hit 120, had an OPS of 360. So yeah. I, I, I would just be this very cautious with Paul DeYoung. I wouldn't buy into what we saw in game one. He sustains his offensive success for about a month, month and a half. Then we can talk about getting him more playing time. But for right now, he's just going to serve as the guy that, hey, you know, it's day seven of this road trip that we're on, and we need to give uh, Tommy Edmund a day off. All right, Paul DeYoung's going to get the start of the short, and honestly, probably going to be pinch hit for later on in the game. Now, that's something from yesterday's game that I wouldn't take too much from. What I might read into a little bit, though, is the way that they constructed the lineup. Now, I don't know if this is going to be a consistent thing. I would bet probably against it. But, guys, I really liked the top five in the lineup yesterday. I like Newt Bar, Goldie, Gorman, Arenado, Contreras. I like the way that that sets up. I don't like Tyler O'Neill batting sixth. I don't like Tyler O'Neill in your lineup right now. I would have Alec Burleson getting the majority of the starts right now in that spot over Tyler O'Neill and batting sixth in your lineup right now. I think that's probably the proper construction. Now, I know they love Goldie and Arenado back-to-back. I get it. It makes a lot of sense to have those guys going back-to-back. But right now, Goldie is not hitting for the power that we have seen from him in previous seasons. And Nolan Gorman has been hitting like one of the best players in all of baseball so far this year. Nothing about this is fluky. He's not striking out the way that he did in previous seasons. If you look at every one of the underlying numbers, it's all real, man. He's hitting the hell out of the baseball. He's hitting no doubters to center field. Nolan Gorman looks awesome. And until that changes, I would have him batting either second or third regularly in that lineup. I actually would put him fourth and I would move Goldie or keep Goldie at two and put Arenado at three. I would be shocked if they move Arenado they probably, out of the cleanup spot. They shocked. probably won't, but Denton put this out a little bit ago that Gorman is the National League leader in two out RBIs. Yep. And to that point, as much as I believe that, yeah, Nolan Gorman should get those opportunities. If you think of how one through three have gone this season, one through four have gone this season where guys have been put into a spot where you got a guy on, but then you're getting two outs and the last guy comes up and he's striking out, grounding out, whatever that is, put Nolan Gorman in an envious opportunity to hit with two outs and guys on base. So I'd have him at four, but I also brought up the opportunity of putting Contreras in between Goldie Arenado and then putting Gordon Gorman behind Arenado. I'd like Gorman between them just because then you've got the lefty to, to break up those bats as well. So you go Newt lefty, righty, lefty, righty there. Um, I like the look of that quite a bit. Yeah, I, I do too. And you guarantee that he's going to see an at-bat in the first inning, yep. which I want. Wh- whoever the hottest hitter is on the team, I want them getting an at-bat in the first inning. I, I would go Newt Bar 1. I would go then Goldie 2. Uh, and then basically like you saw yesterday, up to 5. And then I would put Burleson at 6. What I am fascinated to know is what they're going to do with Donovan. I, I wonder if they're going to give O'Neal or Burrow. I think what they're going to do is I think they're going to give O'Neal a stretch here and left 
they have shouldn't. Burleson be the DH. I, I think that's what they're going to do. I, I think they've start if Donovan's not hitting at the top of their order because he's not getting on base or he's not hitting top two. I think they're going to pull him out to put more power into the lineup. And I, I think you saw well, that this put weekend that has power because Tyler O'Neill doesn't have any so far. He's this built year. to have power. We're diving into the junk drawer coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Alex, I've been working on my handyman around the house. The abilities that I have. Can you improve your your abilities? Yeah, I think so. You can work on it a little bit. You can watch some YouTube videos. Yeah. What's the, your, uh, what's the next next task for Handyman BK? You know, we got a decent tax return this year, and I think uh, next year we're going to finish our basement. I'll nice. let you know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that's going to be somebody else doing it. The only thing that is surprising, though, about my recent projects around the house is that I haven't had a sledgehammer come back and hit me in the face. Now, allow me to explain. I'm surprised you're here today. There is one national company that has recalled 2.2 million sledgehammers that, according to their statement from the company, they prematurely detach unexpectedly during use. The sledgehammers have been sold by hundreds of different uh, consumer places they have received 192 reports of the sledgehammer detaching. There have been multiple reports of faulty sledgehammers causing injuries to the head or face. I'm trying to imagine what you would be using a sledgehammer for. Knocking Me? out a wall. Yeah, would like, okay, yeah. I mean, I don't know what his basement looks like, but that would be like my first instinct. Are you talking of, about me specifically? No, or I'm in thinking general, of people that yeah, that they have to recall their sledgehammers. Or like, destroying a uh, when you when, do uh, when I think of sledgehammers, I think of like you know pounding an iron to the ground you think or something of Thor, like don't that. You? Yeah, kinda demolition taking, of drywall. Uh, yeah, it's okay, but like t- technically, like if you're swinging at drywall, it's not really going to recoil and come back at you. You hit firewood with a sledgehammer? Sure, you put the wedge in there, and then you go, You should use an axe, man. You could, or you could use a sledgehammer with a wedge. Multiple different ways to skin a cat, or to cut firewood. to skin firewood. Um, What? I think that's more user malfunction than anything. Driving fence posts into the ground? First of all, all, also, if you're using a sledgehammer, why is your face so close when when you're swinging it down? Well, if it detaches, yeah, you kind of lose your, control. You know, you got your full thrusting motion going for the sledgehammer. I would appreciate it if you never did that mime or used those words ever again for me. I, uh, I could see where this could be a problem. I mean, I had a uh, shovel come back and hit me in the face the other day, but that was more so did where like what? the piece fell off. Yeah, you know, it's the same thing here. Yeah, but this was the back end piece where my hand was, not the front end where the sledgehammer goes hold down. On, hold on, hold on, what? You hit yourself in the face with a shovel? Yeah, so I was uh, I was picking up leaves, and I was moving them over the fence like I typically do in to this time of the year. Nice. No, not the neighbor's oh. yard. It's dead area behind me. Oh, gotcha. Um, and what it does is it's got one of those plastic handles on the, on the back end of it. So you're holding, and it's held in by a screw. 
and the plastic over time has started to divide. And so I didn't realize it was loose. And so when I went down and I flung it over, when I went down, my hand fell back with the plastic piece and rammed me right in the forehead. That's normal, though, because my head was oh, closer yeah, you know, to totally that normal. end of it. The sledgehammer is on the far side when you're swinging. I mean, if you if I mean, like you would have way. to get some bounce back recoil on that sledgehammer well, I mean, to hit you in the face. You're hitting. Like, if oh, you're it's hitting, coming uh, detached and like yeah. it's literally bouncing off of whatever you hit it with and it's it hitting it? you in the face. But it's coming detached. Is it coming detached with the follow through? I'm when assuming it makes impact. When it makes I'm contact. So, yeah, that's what and I so would it's assume. Bouncing Sorry. off of that. So and then but yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like you got to be like standing like over it when you hit when you make impact. No, no. Yeah, have I'm, you ever used a sledgehammer yeah. before? I think what I'm realizing is that Alex doesn't know how to use a no. sledgehammer. Well, I mean, it's been very rare that I've used a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's normally like a hammer or something, but somebody it's just says totally different. Alex is making BK sound like an expert here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Somebody also uh, offered to finish my basement for me. I'll, I'll give you a call, sir. Coming up next, T-Bone thinks that the Brewers and the Pirates Man, are legit. So even if you disagree with that, I do. Are they starting to put some real pressure on the Cardinals? We'll talk about that. Coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The Pittsburgh Pirates have the second most wins at 16. They're 16 and seven. They're eight and two in their last 10. And they're on a seven game win streak. They're sitting top 10 in ERA. They've hit 27 home runs as a team. That's a top 10 number as well. There's definitely pieces here and there. I mean, are they a complete team? No, but they're they're on the right track, I think. That audio courtesy of MLB Network Radio. Some are buying in to what the Pirates are selling. I've been impressed, Random. no doubt about it, with what they've been able to do. We're 23 games into the regular season, and I, I can't believe that this is true, but it is. The Pittsburgh Pirates have the best record in the National League. Now, there's two different ways that you can read into that. One, which is what I'm doing, it's early, and we should all take a deep breath because I don't think that the Pirates are going to finish the season with a better record than the Braves or the Mets or the Cardinals or the Diamondbacks or the Padres or really basically the entire National League. Or you could take the side that Tanner's been taking, which is the Pirates are coming. The Pirates are coming. Holy no, they're bleep, not. they're back. No, they're not. We're being pillaged. I'm not believing in what the Pirates have done so far this year. That was a good one. Air five. If you look at some of the numbers offensively for them, Connor Joe has been outstanding. Good for him. Connor Joe. I don't think it's going to sustain. Connor Joe is his new Taylor Motter. Andrew McCutcheon has experienced a career renaissance. Again, good for him. I don't think that's going to sustain. Their pitching staff has maybe been the thing that's carried them the most, and that has been carried in large part by Johan Oviedo, who has a 2.2 ERA on the season. Again, go out on a limb. I don't think that will sustain either. Now, if there's a team in the National League, specifically in the Central, that is putting pressure on the Cardinals, it's the Brewers. What they have done so far this year has felt somewhat real. Now, they're not a great team. They are not a perfect team, but they're pretty damn good. Corbin Burns, still awesome. Brandon Woodruff, when healthy, is outstanding. We know that. And they also have some young guys that have come up and have been super impressive. What they've had so far this year from, from Weimer, who has slowed down a little bit, but when he's been in there, 
he's been a good player for them. Now, maybe their best young player was Garrett Mitchell, and he is now on the injured list and is expected to miss the rest of the season, which really stinks for the Brewers if you're a fan of them. Their defense has been outstanding so far this year. It's been the best in baseball numerically, and what they're doing, a little more real. Alex, when you look at those two teams at the top of the NL Central, they have the two best records in the National League as of today. Is that putting pressure on the Cardinals in your mind, who are six and a half games back? The Brewers, yes. The Pirates, no. And I just looked at the Pirates' schedule so far this season, and I mean, the toughest team that they've played against were the Astros, and they won, I think, one game in that series against Houston. Other than that, it's been the Boston Red Sox, it's been the Colorado Rockies, It's they've, they've played cupcake teams, and yeah, I mean, they beat the Cardinals, but... Cardinals kind of are playing kind of Cardinals are playing like those teams right now. So yeah, it's the Brewers for me and the Brewers are the one that are putting pressure on the Cardinals because of how good their pitching staff is. And then of course the offense that we've seen and for how solid their defense overall has been to where they're able to win those low scoring games. So the Brewers are going to have to overcome all of the injuries that they always seem to deal with specifically right now. And then they're going to have to overcome their general manager making a significant trade at the deadline that Everybody sees coming. It's just a matter of time and figuring out what the bleep are they doing. The other team, though, that I do believe might start putting some pressure on the Cardinals is the Cubs. And I'll be intrigued when those two teams play against each other because, like Tanner and I mentioned earlier, their pitching staff has been really good and you're getting some good offense from certain players and they've found ways to beat some compelling teams. They won the series against the Dodgers. They won the series against the Mariners. So... The NL Central is not what it was last year where it's one team and then everybody else. There is some serious competition taking place, which does make you question why the Cardinals are struggling struggling while these other teams are finding success. Yeah, I think the only team that can really start to put pressure on the Cardinals run away with it is Milwaukee. I, I predicted them to be a playoff team before the season started. I thought they would be the last wildcard team. They've had better offense than I was expecting, and I think the pitching's been right about where I was expecting. And I, I thought their pitching would be good. I just didn't know about their offense, but they got some of the younger guys that have stepped up. I am interested to know about the Cubs, but I, I don't think they can pull away from this. I mean, there's still a chance Milwaukee ends up being 10 games up on the Cardinals by the end of this road trip. And though it is early, that's a surmountable hole because not only is it 10 games, it's also having to leapfrog two other team, three teams, really, because the Cubs, Pirates ahead of you, and then you'd have to catch the Milwaukee Brewers. So... I, Milwaukee's the only team that I think is for real here, but the Cubs and Pirates have done enough to where it's like, okay, you've got my interest. How do you look by the time we get closer to the end of May? If, if they look good then, then yes, you should be buying what those teams are selling. Right now, I think it is one of those where it's, hey, they're playing really well. You can kind of see the signs. I think anything, if anything it tells you is maybe not this year, but the next two, three, four years, there are going to be teams that are going to be pushing the Cardinals because I think they're starting to enter their windows. I think there's some truth to that. I think what you can say is that the Pirates are no longer a pushover. They're not what they have been over the last few seasons. They have real major league players at just about every position. Now, I can make my jokes about Connor Joe, but he's he's a real major league baseball player, and he should be in the big leagues, whereas in the past few seasons, they've had a lot of 4A players. Like Sugiyo. Yeah, they're, they're trying oh. guys out. They're putting them out there because they're cheap, they're young, and hey, maybe there's something here. They're not doing that as much this year. They have real guys that they think are either going to be a long-term part of their plan or that they believe like they can they can level things out. They can stabilize things for this season. They just uh, extended their manager over the weekend as well, which is, I, I think, well-deserved. I think he's done a pretty good job managing that team. And maybe most importantly, they've got a good bullpen. And this is another thing that I do think is important. That's a team that I do think will be get dismantled by the time that we get to the trade deadline because they've got pieces that they can send elsewhere across Major League Baseball that'll get them some more prospects. Their their next 10 games or so, they got the Dodgers, they got the uh, Rays, and they got Tan- Toronto. 
if they're still looking like this team after this stretch, I, I will start to take them a little bit more seriously. I don't think we're going to have to have that conversation. Now, on the note of the Brewers pushing the Cardinals, I, I think that part is real because the Brewers are a good team. And at some point, it no longer is early. We've been able to say so far this year, hey, it's early. It's early. This thing's going to come. Well, if you get through this road trip and you're still not playing well and the Brewers have continued to bank some of these wins early on the season, there will come a point in time where you look at the roster and you say, man, maybe a change needs to happen here. Not in terms of the manager. I'm not calling for anybody to be fired, but maybe you shake things up. Maybe you do make a trade to be able to simplify things because you do have a lot of options for the manager right now. And Alex, this is where I wanted to get to. I think it might be time for some Cardinal spring cleaning. Oh, I love spring cleaning. There is nothing that makes you feel like it's springtime without cleaning. I'm done with this Tyler O'Neill experience. Oh, well, you're like, you're taking out the furnace and replacing it in spring cleaning. I already did that. And yes, now I'm doing it with the Cardinals. Wow. I just don't understand why we continue to have to go down this path. I was excited for Tyler O'Neill this year because it wasn't that long ago that he was a legitimate MVP candidate. This year, he's been below league average offensively. He's been below league average in terms of what he's brought to the table overall. He's got a negative wins above replacement on the season. You guys can see that as you're watching the game. He hasn't been as good defensively. He's not the same threat on the bases as he has been in previous seasons. And so far this year, he has the same slugging percentage this year that he had last year. It's at 388. We're talking about how uh, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado aren't hitting for any power. Neither is Tyler O'Neill. He's become a singles hitter that doesn't get on base because he strikes out all the time. Man, why is he in the lineup every day? What is he bringing to the table that Dylan Carlson can't or that Lars Newtbar can't or that Jordan Walker hasn't or that Brendan Donovan can't in his spot in the lineup? You've got better options right now. In fact, I can make the argument that Paul DeYoung at shortstop with... Brendan Donovan in left field, and I'm not saying you should do it every day. You shouldn't. Don't do it, man. But there's a case to be made that that's a better option for you right now. Off of one game of Paul DeYoung? Yes, you're ready to do that? I'm done with it, dude. Man, your spring, your spring cleaning's yeah. going a little Tyler too far. coming into this weekend had one hit with runners in scoring position. One. He has been one of the weakest links on this team so far this year. And at some point, you got to make a change. And for me, the change would be taking him out of the lineup. If he wants to be a defensive replacement late in games because Alec Burleson isn't very good defensively, more power to him. If you want to use him as a pinch runner late in games, cool, if he's willing to run. But right now, he's not performing at the plate. He's not hitting for any power whatsoever. And he's striking out as much as he ever has. The approach is not there. The clutch hitting is not there. I'm ready. I'm ready to make this change of moving on from Tyler O'Neill, whether that means a trade or just to sit him on the bench for the foreseeable future to see what you have with these other options in an extended run. I was with you in the sense of I'm ready to move on from O'Neal in the sense of let's give Tyler or Dylan Carlson an extended look um, to the point where you're putting Paul DeYoung in the lineup. And on that's a regular the last basis. Case, like, Alec Burleson would be your, my first yeah. option there. I would go Burleson, Newt Bar, and Walker as my starting outfielder. I, right I just... I, the thing with Tyler O'Neill is and somebody texted in on our Air Comfort Service text line saying Tyler O'Neill has a high floor and the ability to hit 10 home runs in a month. Great, but I haven't seen that, and I'm losing games right now. And until I get that, I, I'm going to go with a guy who might have more of an upside in Dylan Carlson who's just not getting opportunities right now. Tyler O'Neill's getting these opportunities, but when the biggest opportunity is in front of him, 
you're getting strikeouts. You're getting ground outs. You're getting missed chances, specifically the bases loaded on Saturday, that could have blown that game wide open. You're not getting that. Yeah, he's getting hits for you, and he's getting on base, and he's picking up some RBIs. But the whole thing with Tyler O'Neill is the power. The power. And guess what I'm getting? Power from Nolan Gorman. Power from Alec Burleson. Power from Wilson Contreras. I'm getting power elsewhere. What am I not getting elsewhere? More guys who can hit with runners in scoring position. It's time to figure out who else on this roster can do that and give them more playing time. Not to the Paul DeYoung level, but if I'm talking Dylan Carlson and getting more at-bats to figure out if he can get there, let's do it. And 314-399-9646. Sorry, T-Bone. Somebody said Tyler O'Neill and Brendan Donovan have identical numbers so far this season. Sure. And my options, my alternatives for the Brendan Donovan spot in the order are not as good as my alternatives for that Tyler O'Neill spot in the order right now. The replacement value is different for Donovan versus for O'Neill. And to be fair... They have replaced Brendan Donovan in some of these games recently. Some of that is because of the infection, but some of it is also because, like yesterday, they had a righty-righty matchup that they liked, and they decided to take advantage of it. I think you'll continue seeing more of that if Donovan does not start uh, getting on base at a higher clip. He has been striking out more this season, and the same thing should be true for Tyler O'Neill as well. For me, he would be the guy right now that is losing opportunities in the outfield more so than just about anybody else. Lars has established himself once again. Jordan Walker has, since day one, been a guy that they are starting every day in the outfield. And in left field right now, the guy that should be starting every day, basically, is Alec Burleson. Yeah, or I'd put Dylan Carlson out there. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't know if I'd go to Carlson just yet because I haven't really seen much from Carlson that gives me the... Uh, good feelings about him. I, I guess the, the point that Carlos would make in their argument for it is, well, when right, he's a five-tool player. But, I mean, you can't help but ask the question. So we've talked about his lack of power. You know, typically I would say, well, the power's going to come, like we talked about with Goldie and Arnato. I mean, you've seen it before. He has pure power. But the counter to that, I would say, is if this guy's saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm – I'm trying to stay healthy for 160, and you see the sprint speed is down. Who's to say that that's not affecting his swing at the plate either? Who's to say that he's not pulling off some of the swing power, not swinging as hard to try and stay healthy at the plate? Because that would be maybe part of the reason why you're not seeing the power. Just kind of a tinfoil here, but you have to think about that. When a guy says, I'm trying to stay healthy for 160, and the Cardinals are saying, yeah, but that doesn't mean you should still be dogging it when you're running the bases – you have to wonder at the plate if that is also going through his mind. We've talked about it. You can't play this game trying not to get injured. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to go well for you. I wonder if that is part of the reason you're not seeing power from Tyler O'Neill. And if that's the case, yes, he should not be in the lineup. Yeah, I, I hope Tyler O'Neill gets things back on track. Nothing would be better for the Cardinals than him getting this thing figured out. But right now, I, I wouldn't have him in, in my lineup. You've got... Three right-handed pitchers expected to start over the next four days. We don't know who the fourth will be for San uh, San Francisco yet. They have not announced that. But in those three games specifically, I'm loading the lineup with left-handed hitters. And that does not include Tyler O'Neill for me. Coming up next, we're diving into some NFL quick hitters, including a guy that I think should go number one overall who might end up falling in this year's NFL draft. We'll tell you who that is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And it is time for some NFL quick hitters. Guys, it is officially draft week. 
The draft first round at least takes place on Thursday this weekend. The entirety of the draft will be complete. And God, it is time. (laughs) It is beyond time for this year's NFL drafts to take place. We now basically know who's going number one overall. By all indications, it's going to be Bryce Young. That goes off on the top of the board. It'll be Carolina taking Bryce Young, the quarterback from Alabama. Big mistake or tiny mistake if you want to go that route. (laughs) The draft really starts at number two. And the longer we go, the more it feels as if the Texans are going to pass on a quarterback there. That's what all of the mocks seem to be indicating. And yet Vegas has Will Levis as the favorite to go number two overall. Don't know if that he's the quarterback from Kentucky. I don't know if that's because they think there's going to be a trade to number two or if they think that the Texans will take him there. Neither here nor there. Alex Peter King of Pro Football Talk is a guy that I pay a lot of attention to. He's very tied in around the league. He does one mock draft every year, comes out at the beginning of the NFL draft week. Last year, he had the most accurate mock of anybody that put together a mock draft. So when I see what he puts out there, I think it's worth taking uh, pretty seriously. He had Tennessee trading up to number three overall for CJ Stroud. He had Will Levis going number four overall to the Indianapolis Colts. He then... Keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Had dropping all the way down to number 23, Anthony Richardson, the quarterback from huh. Florida. So your boy's going not to the talented. Minnesota Vikings. Alex, he also had Hinden Hooker going in the top 15, the quarterback <laughs> from Tennessee, going <laughs> to the Texans at number 12 overall. And you're backing Chris King's mock draft. Or Peter King's mock draft. I'm not backing it. I'm not telling you this is how it should go down. I'm telling you he, t- he tends to know how it will go down. Ooh. Do you think that one of those top four quarterbacks that we've been talking so much about with Young, kind of count him out on this, Stroud, Levis, and Richardson, do you think one of those guys is going to end up falling more than expected when we get to the first round on Thursday? I do believe one of them is going to be selected somewhere between 18 and 25 something like that i somebody is going to drop because will levis i I think that's pretty much set in stone he's going to go to the colts unless the texans take him or somebody trades up and likes him more cj stroud the the titans thing is really intriguing and i think that would be a really smart move for tennessee because cj stroud seems to be what they would like to build off of in terms of a mobile quarterback like we've seen with cj stroud somebody's going to fall and it does feel like it could be an Anthony Richardson unless somebody wants to trade up 22 though for an Anthony Richardson. It's an intriguing take right there, but yeah, I see somebody falling to me. It's either Stroud or Richard Richardson. It's one of those two. That's going to drop into that area. I agree. I think it's going to be one of those two. I would probably lean towards Richardson. He suddenly has not been getting a lot of buzz, and and that's why I start to wonder if he's going to start to tumble down draft boards. And also, he's probably the biggest project of the four top four quarterbacks that we've talked about. I mean, we've talked about he started what thirteen games in college, and he's not that. He's got a cannon of an arm, but he's not that great of a passer. So I, I could see where he ends up being the one that tumbles. But if I'm like Minnesota, and that's where he does fall. Yeah, I think you absolutely take a draft pick, take a flyer on him, draft him, have him Senator Cousins for a year. I, I do like the idea of the Titans trading up. I I think if you do that, though, they need to hang on to Ryan Tannehill because I think you don't just draft or trade up, draft Stroud, and start Stroud immediately. Not, not on that team. There's not enough talent offensively on that team to build him up and make him a confident quarterback. I think you'd just be putting him into the fire, and I don't think it would work out that well. I, I think that we're going to see all of them go top 10. And the reason why I say that is because I just refuse to believe 
that a guy that is six foot five, 240 pounds, and is the most athletic quarterback that has ever been tested at the NFL Combine, and who showed the kind of arm talent that Anthony Richardson did at Florida, I refuse to believe that that guy's going to fall. We saw this with Trey Lance, who started, I think it was 12 games in college. We've seen this with Zach Wilson, who was like 6'1 and a buck 85 soaking wet. That ended up being the top three in the NFL draft. When you've got this kind of talent, the NFL will take you. Somebody will trade up if that's what it ends up being, where he falls a little further than what we're currently anticipating. I would be shocked if Anthony Richardson falls as far as people are expecting. The one that I think might (coughs) is CJ Stroud. I don't get it. I'm with you guys. I think he's going to be a really solid NFL quarterback. But the way that everybody's talking about him this week and really over the last week or two has been surprising to me. So if there's one that falls, he would be my choice. But I think all four of them end up going in the top 10. And there's teams that trade up. There's other ways about this. I I think they end up going top 10. Another guy that is currently being projected to be a top 10 pick is Bajon Robinson, the running back out of Texas. Now, if you spent any amount of time watching Robinson at Texas, you know this guy is a superstar talent. People have said he is the best running back prospect since Saquon Barkley. Doesn't quite have his uh, acceleration, his speed, but everything else he's good at. He's a very good pass catcher. He can pass block. He is one of the better contact balance runners that we've seen in recent years as well. In this mock by Peter King, he has him going number eight overall to Atlanta. Alex, taking away who Bijan Robinson is as a player, how good would he have to be in the NFL in order to, for him to be worth a top 10 pick? How good would any running back have to be in order to be worth a top 10 pick in the NFL I draft? I mean, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey. That's what, to me, if you're drafting them top 10, they have to be that impactful of players uh, to be taken at that position. Uh, and. I mean, that's a tough task to go with, especially if you're talking about like what a Saquon Barkley has been for that New York Giants team, because when he's been injured, they've been awful when he's there and healthy, they've been successful. And then now we just saw the impact of a Christian McCaffrey. But yeah, if you're taking a guy top 10, those are probably the two poster childs you're saying you have to be comps to. I I think I agree with that. I I think you have to be kind of Christian McCaffrey-esque, and you also have to be a guy that is like the, the driving force of the offense. And what I mean by that is, Without you, the offense can't really function. And we were talking about this in the office. Reminds me a lot of what Todd Gurley did with the Rams uh, in L.A. when they got to the Super Bowl that first year under McVay. Now he ended up missing a lot of the playoffs because he started dealing with knee injuries. But that team doesn't get to the playoffs without Todd Gurley because he was a great rusher for them, had a ton of rushing yards. But not only was it that, he's also able to help them set up the play-action game, and that's what allowed golf to thrive. So I think it's kind of twofold. You have to put up serious numbers like Christian McCaffrey did, both in receiving yards and also rushing. But also, you just have to be a guy that is where when game planning for you, it sets up the play-action game, like Atlanta, for example. He goes to Atlanta. He plays well. What are teams going to do? They're going to start stacking the box and then allows that play-action game for some for some reason Desmond Ritter the starting quarterback to go down the field with the football I think you need to have a borderline hall of fame start to your career that's what it was with Todd Gurley that's what it was with Christian McCaffrey I think you can make an argument that listen top five was rich but Ezekiel Elliott was worth a first round pick now the problem is when they play that well and we've seen this burn the Rams it burned the Cowboys it it did at the time at least burn the Panthers it's that second contract that ends up hurting you If you're willing to say, you know what, we'll go five years with this 
and then we'll either give you a like below market value contract or we're willing to let you walk or we'll trade you in that fifth year. That's the smart way to go about this. Those first four years can be well worth it with a first round running back. But you've got to be on a Hall of Fame trajectory early in your career to make this thing worth it. If a team thinks that Bajan Robinson is capable of that, take him. Take him in the first round. I wouldn't take him top 10, but you can take him at some point in the first round, and it very well may end up being worth your while. But I think you need to be a legit, like, Philadelphia, to me, is the team. They are a contender right now. You could put him into that offense. It's like, okay, so now you're going to put people in the box against a great offensive line, and you're going to get beat down the field by Devontae Smith. You're going to get beat down the field by A.J. Brown. He is a piece of the machine. In Atlanta? You're going to take him, and now you're going to have a quarterback, Desmond Ritter? Ah, that's a tough first sell for me to be willing to go down that path. So I think there are teams that it can work for, but he's got to be excellent, and the team needs to be ready to win right now. That's what happened with the Cowboys whenever they drafted Dak Prescott and Zeke Elliott was a part of their uh, foundation, and it's what happened with the Rams when Todd Gurley was there. Question for you because you got me, and it sparked my interest here. <laughs> if you're the Eagles, you get buzz. Say you like Robinson and you have this projection that we say, and you can just you can envision it the way we just did. You get buzz that he's going to be selected. I don't know twelfth overall. I don't even know who who's at twelve. But say he's project. Say you hear buzz, he's going twelfth. Do you trade up to go get him? I wouldn't trade up for a running back. I, I agree. Either. I agree. But I thought it was an interesting question because yeah. when you look at that team, I agree a contender. You put him on that roster. It just makes that offense to takes that offense to the next level. At least if you project him to be a Hall of Famer. I, I'm with you guys. I wouldn't do it, but I just wanted to throw it out there. Yeah, I think the other thing is there's just there's so much opportunity cost. Like if you were to trade up, you're giving up the opportunity to to draft whoever it is that's going to fall to you. Like one of Jalen Carter, Will Anderson, Devin Witherspoon, or uh, the other cornerback uh, Christian Gonzalez from Oregon. One of those guys is likely to fall to you if you end up getting four quarterbacks in the top ten. So I'll take whoever, which whichever one of those guys is there or potentially going with a Bajan Robinson type of a route. Uh, final thing here, as we go through some NFL quick hitters, guys, it's draft week, and that means that the trades are coming back into the forefront. There was a report yesterday that the Aaron Rodgers negotiations are back on. I know all of us are very excited to see that resolved. There's also a report from Jeremy Fowler of ESPN that NFL teams believe the Titans quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, is officially available via trade. <laughs> Where do you think makes the most sense for Ryan Tannehill? I have said since day one, I think the Washington Commanders feel like the spot that makes sense for him. It would be basically the Alex Smith route once again, where they're getting just a super stable, solid quarterback to come in there and start this year. I think they're fine. I don't think they're a terrible team. They've got a solid defense. They've got a good uh, veteran coach, and their passing options are, are not bad. John Dotson, Terry McLaurin, it's a good start of an offense. I think they make a ton of sense for him. Is there a better spot, in your opinion, for Ryan Tannehill? Tampa Bay. That's if you can one. accomplish that because I that's, don't know how they can make the money work, but it's a good spot. Yeah, that would be the only thing. But I mean, you talk about a receiving court. I mean, Ryan Tannehill, when he had AJ Brown and for how talented that team was when they were making their deep push in the playoffs. I mean, to go to a team that's got Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, I would say that's probably an ideal situation for him. I, I like that one, too. I The one that kind of popped into my mind as we were talking about all this draft speculation, if Robinson's going to Atlanta, you want to talk about the perfect quarterback to go in there and play the same style yep. he's doing in Tennessee? That's true. It would be Ryan Tannehill. Trade for Ryan Tannehill. You draft John Robinson. You've got Kyle Pitts at tight end. you got Drake London at wideout. Like, you're starting to see the weapons come together there offensively. And, again, Ryan Tannehill's not like a top-ten quarterback or anything. But as we've seen – 
he can be a good game manager like he has been for the Titans. Now, there's a ceiling to that. But if you're Atlanta and you're looking to just get back into the playoffs in a weak division in the NFC South, that kind of move would make sense. What about, what about Miami? If there if there are any going concerns, back to Miami, yeah, if there full are, circle career, if there are any concerns of Tua, I mean that would make some sense in terms of still being competitive yeah. right away. Yeah, if you think that he's the guy, they they signed Mike White in the off season, so I think that they're good there. Oh, but Magic Mike, I forgot about that. If you think that there are real concerns with Tua, then I could see that making a lot of sense. If you want to stick with the AFC East, the Patriots are really out on Mac Jones. He could make some sense there as well as a stopgap option. He's He's got some of the athleticism that we've seen from them in the past uh, since the Tom Brady experiment came to an end. I, I could see the Patriots maybe being a team that would be interested in Ryan Tina Hill as well. Coming up next, man, it's really hard to watch Ryan O'Reilly in these playoffs right now and not wonder to yourself, ah, do the Blues have a player like that that raises their game in the postseason? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Count that, that big bang. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Man, Ryan O'Reilly's been awesome. Once again, who could have seen, seen it coming? Who could have seen it coming? Three games, two goals, three assists, five points so far in the playoffs for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he was a big part of the reason why Toronto was able to win that game over the weekend. Did I see he got a Gordie Howe hat trick over the weekend? Yeah, do a fight? I, I thought so. I, I thought I heard something about that. Um, oh, that would be surprising with him. He's yeah, become agreed. a different guy when yeah, he went I was up north. Say. He, he's been unbelievable for Toronto. Alex, as I was watching that game, yeah, you did get into a fight. Okay, I thought I saw that. Um, What'd you Ryan. do, Ryan? As I was watching that, and I'm I'm seeing the kind of impact that he can have on a team that clearly needed somebody that focuses on the details the way that Ryan O'Reilly does. Like fighting? I thought to myself, do the Blues have a player like that that raises their game in the playoffs? Because I know they have one in net. I know they have one of Jordan Bennington. Do they have a skater that plays the way that Ryan O'Reilly does and raises their game in the postseason? In your mind? I would say no, because the only guy that would come to mind on the roster now that has performed well in the playoffs would be Jordan Cairo. And even Jordan Cairo had his quiet moments in the postseason last year. So, no, you don't. That's the one thing about this team when it comes to that retool becoming a quicker retool than anybody anticipated. I'm not sure if you have a playoff performer yet on this team now. Maybe Robert Thomas can get to be that. Brandon Saad had his moments when he was with the Colorado Avalanche prior to him signing in St. Louis. But in terms of watching a Ryan O'Reilly impactful player, or you brought up Andre Kopitar uh, last week for how well he's played in terms of the defensive-minded, no, you don't have that guy. And frankly, there's certain guys that can get to that level, but it's going to take a lot of work because Ryan O'Reilly essentially in his career has been a point per guy or point per game player in the playoffs. He's he's had more points per game in the postseason than he did in the regular season so far in his career. And there, it's very rare to find that wow. across the NHL, yeah. but he's one of the players that has. Yeah, I, I don't know if the Blues have somebody that can do it on a consistent basis on the roster. I, I think they've got guys that can do it in spurts. I mean, Alex mentioned Cairo. There were spurts last year during that playoff run where it was like, 
wow, Cairo's ready to take his game to the next level. And then there was a stretch where it was like, oh, boy, Jordan Cairo's just non-existent. You can't find him. Same with Robert Thomas. Robert Thomas played really good last year in the regular season, and he thought, okay, he's going to showcase, can he be a shutdown centerman for the Blues? And in the playoffs last year, I didn't think he was there. Shen's had moments. Sod's had moments. I think the only guy that is a playoff performer on this roster is Jordan Bennington, and it is at the most important position goalie. I mean, we just talked about it earlier in the show. The goaltending's been terrible in the playoffs so far, so... That's the one guy I would say on this roster, though, is a playoff performer, is Jordan Bennington. And the rest of them, I think you got guys that can do it in spurts, but I don't think you have a guy like Ryan O'Reilly. I know we've gone back and forth about this, and, and you know I've gone back and forth, too, about does Ryan O'Reilly make sense for this team, or did you move on from him, and he's just not going to have that speed element? His playoff performance has made me think, man, if you, if you need a center this offseason, you might need Ryan O'Reilly because he wins face-offs. He's good defensively. You don't rely on him to be... I mean, he was moved to their third line for Toronto in the previous game. And I think that's what he is at this point in his career. And he would probably admit to that. But he's still a guy who can play 17, 18 minutes a night and you don't have to rely upon... I mean, we could sit here and nitpick about what center makes sense if they go down the route of a center, but it might be Ryan O'Reilly. So the funny thing is, at, I want to push back. I, I want to sit here and tell you that I disagree with that. My mind's telling me no. But when I think about what the Blues need long term, a lot of it is wrapped into Ryan O'Reilly, man. Yeah. But it's only if he's willing to be that third line center. It's only if he's willing to accept four, four and a half million dollars per year to be that third line player. And then I think to myself, okay, so who's he playing with? And it continues getting more and more difficult to come up with what that specific line combination would be. So I, I think he makes a lot of sense for what the Blues are, are missing right now in terms of a detail-oriented player. But when I think about what they're trying to become, I just don't know that they'll actually do it. And it really comes down to the price. And I know yeah. that sounds so crazy to say, but I mean, you're not going to be able to bring him in. I think Doug predicted to have about $4.1 million in available money to spend this offseason. And he's already not in the age frame that they were looking for. Yep. And you're not going to be given out a four-year contract extension. So in all reality, it more than likely won't happen. But the problem is you're to... to expedite a retool and make sure that you're in that competitive window fast enough. You need a guy like that because the LA Kings aren't where they're at. If they don't have the Ajay Kopitar's performing and by no means am I comparing God, that the guy's two, good, man. but Ajay Kopitar does everything and he takes his game to the next level. When you hit the postseason. the amount of times that the Chicago Blackhawks won the Stanley cup because Jonathan Taves always kept his game to the next level. The Tampa Bay lightning, Steven Stamkos always took his game to the next level. Sometimes you need those guys if you want to be competitive. And the hard part is you just, it feels like you're trying to, to jam a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. And to BK's point, you know, it's hard to envision who's going to be on the line with him and just the way the Blues are trying to build, become that rush team. And we said this at the time, you know, I, I think had O'Reilly worked with Jordan Cairo early on in the season for the Blues when they tried that out early. One, who knows? Maybe they end up being a team that can make the playoffs. They don't have one of those big seven-game losing streaks. But two, let's say it still didn't work out. But you saw signs of, hey, you know what? It works. Ryan O'Reilly, Jordan Cairo, he can play on a line with a, a speedster, a rush player on his wing. Then I think what we could be talking about is a different story here. I, I think they would have basically tried the Aroldis Chapman route that the uh, Yankees did, where it's trade him away, get assets in return, and then go re-sign him, bring him in as a third liner, and know he can play on a rush team. But they just did not see that. And I think that's why you're going to look at Ryan O'Reilly. And yes, he seems to make sense, and he seems to have all the things that you want in a player that they're going to be looking for this offseason. But it just did not work this year when they were trying to transition to a rush team. And I think that's the ultimate thing that's going to keep them out of St. Louis. Here's the question that I have, Alex. 
if I told you these are the lines going into the start of the next season, is this a playoff team in your opinion? Buchnevich, Thomas Kyrie, that's your top line. Neighbors, Shin, and Verona. Saad, O'Reilly, and Kapanen. And then your fourth line is Torpchenko, Alexandrov, and Blay. Offensively, I would say absolutely that's a playoff team. That has the potential to be a playoff team? Absolutely. If you believe that, if Army believes that more importantly, I think it makes a lot of sense. Because as I'm watching this Western Conference uh, playoff, the Stanley Cup playoffs right now, I don't see overwhelming teams. I don't see teams that I look at and say, oh, I don't know how you get this done. The way that I did last year with Colorado or the way that some have done in the past with Vegas. There's not that overwhelming matchup. And a lot of these teams are going to continue potentially taking pieces away more so than building pieces up. So that is where I do think it can make some sense for the Blues is, hey, we're not as far away as we thought. We're watching the playoffs and we feel like we're not that far away from a lot of these teams. And maybe most importantly, Verona and Kapanen changed things for us. Mm-hmm. And we're closer than we thought we were because of what they're bringing to the table. But your answer has to be, we are close. And if we add O'Reilly back into this mix, we think we're ready to make that playoff. Well, playoff and it again. also does a couple of things. One, when you look at the landscape in the Western Conference and the playoffs, uh, all teams, the reason that there's not an overwhelming uh, favorite is because they all have a defensive-minded forward who's been able to eliminate the other team's top line. Minnesota's had it. Dallas has had it. LA's had it. Edmonton eh, sometimes has had it. The and, other, the, and the goaltending's been bad. And the goaltending's been bad. And the other factor into O'Reilly, too, is if you do have this incoming flux of young forwards that could be affecting your team next season, you're going to want to have some type of leader in place, and that's something that we've talked a lot about. We're going to hit the rewind coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. from today's show be sure to check it out on the podcast page 101 espn.com and the free 101 espn app is where you can go to find it the cardinals back in action tonight against the san francisco giants please please cardinals pick up your first win in the first game of a series so far this year by the way i don't know if you've seen this the Giants also winless in the first games of their series so far this year. Well, that's not going to be great good for the due. Cardinals. Ugh. Something's got to give. Holly said it doesn't matter. Going yeah. up against Alex Cobb, he's a right-handed expert. starter. You should have a bunch of lefties in the lineup. We'll be very curious to see if they go with that uh, Gorman batting third in the lineup configuration once again tonight. Holly we'll certainly D. be breaking it all down tomorrow for you here on 101 ESPN. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Talk to you guys tomorrow. The Fast Lanes coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.